Welcome to Game Studies. Study Buddies, your one-stop shop for learning everything you might want to know about the academic discipline of Game Studies, or at least the parts of it we've read. I'm Cameron Kunzelman. And I'm Michael Lutz. Yay! Hooray! Michael, we did not talk about uh, that last episode was our 12th episode, meaning that the one-year anniversary yes. of Game Studies, Study Buddies exists. Yes. It has been an entire year of studying and buddying. Wow. Powerful. <laughs> <laughs> really makes you think. It, uh, it, it, you know, it really does. And if you've been listening to every episode, you've basically, it took you a year, but you've gotten one one graduate seminar's worth of game studies information. Yeah, basically. Like, yeah. without any sort of <laughs> programmatic design intended to teach you something specific, uh, it w- if you just walked into a seminar and the professor was like, we're going to read 12 books. <laughs> I don't know which ones, but it's going to happen. Uh, that's what you got. <laughs> I mean, I'll be honest with you. That was a, that, that's been a large part of my graduate education. <laughs> taking <laughs> seminars that are like, oh, you know, phenomenology. Let's, let's just go. Let's just figure it out. Um so yeah, sure. Yeah, it works. Hmm. <laughs> so um, I'll insert here a montage of all the most beautiful moments mm-hmm. uh, from the past year. I'm not going to do that. that it's like forever. all of the times that there were people banging in my basement. All of the times <laughs> that my cat screamed. <laughs> oh, there's one episode. I don't think we've talked about it, but there's one episode where you're holding uh, your cat and you can hear him purring very, very loud. Yeah, because um, I let him in to stop him from pur- from oh. stop him from screaming, but then he just like settled in my lap and purred. Yeah, it was good. That's a good uh, episode. It's great. Uh, the classics. Um, but today we're talking about another classic. Look at that. Look at that transition. Look at that. That was nice. Hmm. It's only good when you call it out. <laughs> um, but yeah, we're talking about classic book game studies. Talking about Johann Huizinga's Homo Ludens. That means playing man. Wow. <laughs> that's, and now we're done. That's the yep, episode. That's, it. that's, that's it. all you need to know. <laughs> uh, subtitle. I. You know what? I'll be honest. I don't know if I knew that there was a subtitle until we read this for the episode but the subtitle is a study of the play element in culture Mm -hmm. so michael had you read this book before i had read uh large chunks of it there are chapters that i had skipped and we will get to uh why i mean we'll get to those chapters but uh essentially like there are chapters here that are just so very specific in what they're about um that you can tell right off the bat, like, oh, I don't need to read this if you come to this book looking for certain information. Um, this is the first time I've done it cover to cover, and now I have kind of decided that this book defies description in, in some ways. Yes. I Yeah, I'm in a very similar boat. I, For some reason, I thought that I had read this book cover to cover before, but then as I read it, I realized, no, <laughs> I'm not. I think basically I'd read like the beginning third and the back third mm-hmm. and skip the middle third. And you know what? Here's a little bit of a spoiler. You can do that if you want to. You absolutely can. <laughs> oh, so so um, this book is a little bit weird. And you've got this in your notes, too. But um, there are a lot of different publication dates for this mm-hmm. book. Because Huizinga, who was dead, maybe I'll say that first. He's dead. <laughs> he died in 1945, um, 
did he die in the Second World War? Uh, let's see, he was 72 years old. Wow. 1872 to 45. I'm looking at Wikipedia here. Um, in 1942, he spoke critically of the country's German occupiers because he's from the Netherlands. Yes. Um, and uh, so he hated the Nazis. Good on him. Mm-hmm. Um, and, oh, yeah, he, he was held in detention in 1942, and he died just a few weeks before the Nazis were defeated. But didn't, so he technically died in World War II, but not in World War II. <laughs> <laughs> he was not a combatant. Yes, exactly. Um, but um, so this is kind of like the big book, I think, in the U.S. as far as like the books that Huizinga wrote. Mm-hmm. You know, Homo Ludens, I think, is the big one. But the only you and I were talking off mic earlier. But the only one that I was even aware of is his book, um, "The Waning of the Middle Ages," which he mentions in Homo Ludens quite a bit. Um, mm-hmm. And um, he, I guess, he's an, he's what was he? He's an anthropologist. Yeah, he uh, like he, he. So one of the things that's really interesting about Hazinga, and I think. Uh, about this book, right, is that this, he is writing before the academic discipline, as we kind of understand it, uh, comes to exist, right? Mm. He's writing in a time where you could be a professor and you didn't have to have a PhD. Like, a PhD wasn't a degree that really existed at this time. You just had to have, like, taken enough classes and uh, maybe gotten your master's and been really good friends with one of the other professors in the department. (laughs) Um, Uh, So, like, 2019. Yes, 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 exactly. Hey-o! <laughs> uh, the academic job market is bad, everybody. <laughs> it's very bad. Um, but uh, it became, basically in the post-war period, it gets really uh, sort of systematized in a way that it isn't prior to that. And so, uh, like, peop- like, there are periods that people study, um, but periodization within a department is not as necessarily as much of a thing. So, like, Hazinga, if you were to describe him in contemporary terms, is probably closest to something like a medievalist or a sort of, like, medievalist cultural historian. Um, and I think he is, like, by training specifically a historian. Uh, but, mm. like, that's kind of... If you were to pull someone with Hazinga's, like, interests in, like, things he did into the present day, like, sort of medieval to, like, very... Uh, early um renaissance uh Mm. would be kind of his period yeah because you can kind of feel in the uh later chapters of this book when he's kind of doing oh i don't know like a progress narrative history and we're going to talk quite a bit about that i think during this episode but you you can kind of feel when he gets out of his expertise zone a little Mm -hmm. bit um you can feel that doing it um and just to give people an idea too you kind of talked about this was a time period before hyper specialization or or the contemporary kind of um phd specialization that i guess we get in like the post-war period um Mm -hmm. And it, now, it, in your neck of the woods, we don't really have this, but but I'm given to understand in the world of, of like English and history and, and other uh, allied humanities in that zone that there's the phrase, your people in your period. Uh, that- that's maybe a thing that I've heard before. <laughs> okay. I, I've, I've been told that's a thing. I okay. don't know. Uh, but yeah, so so yeah, that someone always has a 
group that they study and then when they studied those people. So Oh yeah, um, no, that's yeah, a that's know. a I've never heard it formulated precisely that way, but that's a fair way of like describing kind of what goes on in English. Mm-hmm. Because you are a English modernist? An early modernist. Oh, that's right. I'm sorry. Yes. That's all the same. It was, it's before the invention of the, of the camera apparatus. It's all the same to me. <laughs> right, exactly. Right. So, yeah, my people are like the English. Uh, and then my period is early modern, which essentially means kind of about from where Huizinga leaves off to um, nearly up to the point where he thinks that culture got ruined, which we'll talk about <laughs> later. <laughs> um <laughs> Yeah, I was finishing that uh, that last chapter, so I, I tend to to what I do um, for these episodes, just to go behind the curtain a little bit for listeners, is I uh, read all of the book in like the week or so before before we record, and then I read the conclusion like thirty minutes before we record. Just so I have like one piece of the book that's like really stuck <laughs> in my head, and so I read that conclusion where he talks about how culture has been destroyed and annihilated. Um, I, I read that, so that's very fresh. I'm, I'm very uh, uh, eager to talk about that. <laughs> but but yeah, um, I guess that's that's enough background uh, on him. Um, this book is big for game studies. I guess that's maybe the other little plank before we really dive into it. Mm-hmm. Um, it is he is credited with coming up with a lot of the arguments that i don't know early game studies responds to and that early game studies kind of forms itself in conversation with i mean Mm -hmm. i think it's hard you know when we read literary gaming and we were talking about that chapter that was kind of like the philosophical lit review i think it's hard for it's hard probably hard to find a philosophical lit review across game studies that does not have some sort of mention of this book in hazinga is that is that a fair yeah no i think that's absolutely the case there's uh like there's there's something foundational to this book um, for the discipline, which is very strange, because when you actually read the book, the the parts of it that game studies kind of forks off from, it's maybe like a total of four paragraphs across two hundred pages. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, like I, that's a little conservative, probably, but like that that gives you a sense for like precisely how much content is in this book versus how much content actually really, I think, uh, becomes part of the language of game studies. Yeah, and I think a lot of the formative, you know, we talk about, and, and you know, this is the 50th time we've brought it up, and, and everyone is tired of talking about it, but when we think of formative debates in game studies, we think of narratology versus ludology, right? Like, that's one of those things that just it won't die and it keeps coming up and um it's hard to read any of these books you know in earlier game studies and not be thinking about those kinds of terms but what i think is interesting here it, well so ludology and narratology we at least believe that like it's more complicated than that right so that's mm-hmm. a, it's a debate that's put to bed because it's an insufficient debate and everyone seems to agree on that mm-hmm. but what i think is interesting about this book is it's it sets up some terms for a different debate that i think is still ongoing in game studies and i think is not something that people are willing to put to bed which is the difference between play and games Mm-hmm. Um, and this book has a lot to say about play and not that much to say about games, honestly, uh, right. you know, in my opinion. Um, but 
But people still are constantly relitigating the idea between play and its most broad definition, which Huizinga is kind of working within, and then you know whatever the the boundaries we put around play when we talk about games. Um, and so I guess that, that's something that will be interesting to talk about here. Because I don't, you know, like I said, I don't think that's settled. And I honestly am not sure, you know, this book comes out in, uh, I'm looking at your notes here, in 49. That's the English translation? Uh, yes. Um, so it finally brought into English in 1949. I am not sure that the debate and discussion around play has moved very much since 1949. <laughs> right. Um, and I think, did we give the, the date when he... So the book was composed originally in 1938. Yeah. Right. Like, that's when he, he wrote it originally in, in I guess, Dutch, because he's, you know, a Dutch historian. Um, but, yeah, so, like, not only is there kind of a big gap between when he writes it to when it enters, like, sort of the, the English, like, speaking kind of academic world, um, but then, yes, like, there is absolutely, like, so one of the things, I guess, that we should say up front, and that's, he says this in his title, is that Huizinga is not really interested in games, right? He is interested in play. Yeah, the play element. Right. Um, did you do you have this translator's note by the way at the at the opening of your book? Uh, I know I do have a translator's note, but what is what does yours say? So let me just read it really quick. So I have the original like Beacon Press edition of this, like the facsimile edition. Oh, um, and there there are like a, a there are several different ones. I think this is just like the one that was available a decade ago or most easily available. But so this is the translator's note, which I find interesting too. In this like, what is this book about kind of way? <laughs> um, translator's note: This edition is prepared from the German edition published in Switzerland in 1944. Okay, so so there's a 38 is the original publication, 44 is the German edition, and then 49 is English. Just to give people some context. I also have this edition, by the way. So continue. Okay. Um, so published in Switzerland in 1944, and also from the author's own English translation of the text, which he made shortly before his death. Comparison of the two texts shows a number of discrepancies and a marked difference in style. The translator hopes that the following version has achieved a reasonable synthesis, which is fascinating. So basically, I, you know, what I infer from this is that Huizinga is rewriting his own book in English purposefully. Yeah, since since he's translating it himself, and then the translator who gives us the English edition, uh, you know, decides to roll some of those back in their own translation. So I think that's an interesting little point here too that that we're getting the study and the play element in culture, but but there are pieces of this book that are purposely being geared to speak to America, and we don't really know which ones those are. Mm-hmm. So I think that, that, that's something interesting, too. And that might have something to do with how much he hates sports <laughs> toward yeah. the end of the game. Yeah, um, no, he's he's got a lot of thoughts about uh, what American culture has, has done to popular sentiment generally. Yeah. Oh, and my, my book actually says 1952. I said 49 before, but I've got a 1950 Roy Publishers edition. Um, okay, so, uh, yeah, no, I have 1949 for this first edition published by Rutledge. Dang competing editions yeah dueling banjos um okay so after all of these things that we that we we have uh prefaced with here maybe we can talk about it yeah um we can actually talk about the thing um 
you have a foreword. I didn't read the foreword because um, I'm a bad reader. I, I don't read translators' prefaces normally. Um, I don't read forewords. Um, is there anything of note here in the foreword before we jump in? <clears throat> um, not, uh, not particularly. Um, he just sort of talks about. So he, he mentions right that like obviously his title is. Uh, drawing off like homo sapiens right um and specifically like hom- also homo faber um like that is to say man the maker so mm-hmm. uh he is basically saying like well actually rather than saying that like you know humanity is wise or like whatever human- modern humanity is um rather than saying that humans are wise or humans make things um we're going to say that humans are are playful creatures um and so <laughs> he, he says, it is ancient wisdom, but it is also a little cheap to call all human activity play. Those who are willing to content themselves with a metaphysical conclusion of this kind should not read this book. Nevertheless, we find no reason to abandon the notion of play as a distinct and highly important factor in the world's life and doings. For many years, the conviction has grown upon me that civilization arises and unfolds in and as play. Hmm. So this is like one of the things that gets really confusing about about this book kind of generally is he will simultaneously sort of say that the the I like everything humans do is play, right? Nothing like nothing that we do is not play in some sense. And he'll he'll like sort of take that position and he'll be like, this is glib and like simple and you know, it's trite, whatever. But then he'll also be like, but also it's true. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, as you're reading that, I think he now he after this point goes on to say 85 percent of all human activities play. Right. (laughs) He's just mad about the number and the totality and not the fact that, you know, that that is his fundamental argument. Right. Um, So that's essentially what the foreword uh, lays out, uh, because and you can tell there are a couple of points in, in the book itself where. Uh, he mentions other academics, uh, contemporary academics to him, responses to his work, where they basically say, you're, you're just based, like, the, 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 the end point of your argument is that there is nothing that is not play, right? Like, they had, that is a criticism that is being levied at him in his own time. It, it seems accurate. In yeah. 2019. <laughs> yep. Yes, no. And we can get to that. Um, yeah. But I guess let's start with kind of the first chapter, because I think if so, we've we've already kind of raked this book over the coals a little bit. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But if you are a game studies person and you want to read this book, the one chapter that I think I can safely say you should read is this first one. Yeah, I yeah, I agree. If if you are. Well, just to add to that, uh, to give people a roadmap. Right. So the first Three chapters are if this were if this were a book written in 2019, they would be a section, and that section would be like play theory. Yes, um, and then it would be chapters three through nine. Uh, yeah, uh, no, chapters three through ten would be um, case studies. It would mm-hmm. just be like, this is where the theory shows up in the world. And then the final two chapters, because there's 12 chapters in the book, the final two chapters would be like um, 
forward prospects or something like that. I mean, this mm-hmm. very much feels like a, like almost in in structure like an MIT Press kind of book, right? Of like here here's how yeah. we think, here's how we can apply that thinking, here's what that thinking leads us to. Um, and so I think we'll probably spend the most amount of time on these first three chapters, and then we will. I mean, I don't have a whole lot to say. You probably have. Um, uh, interesting and important things to say about these middle chapters, but I don't, uh, yeah. just because he's digging into history so much. Yeah. Um, I mean, I have then, some thoughts, and we can go over them, but yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then I have more stuff toward the end, but but just to give people an idea, we're going to be spending the bulk of the episode on kind of the first three chapters ish, and then the final two, um, with some notes in the middle, probably. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. Uh, his first chapter uh, is is really great. His, the first line of the first chapter uh, is really great at, at setting the scope. It's, the chapter is titled Nature and Significance of Play as a Cultural Phenomenon. Um, and then he just kind of he, he hits the ground running. Play is older than culture. For culture, however inadequately defined, always presupposes human society. And animals have not waited for man to teach them their playing. Okay, that's the first sentence. He's coming out the gate. He's coming yep. out hot. <laughs> yep. He's just like, yo, like, I know that this book is called, like, Homo Ludens, and this makes you think it's going to be about, like, playing man, but guess what? Animals play, too. People are animals, too, you punks. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, this is the fundamental argument of the whole book, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, that that play operates as a kind of substrate or the kind of bedrock of all this other stuff that humans mm-hmm. and other species do. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yep. So that is, that's important to keep in mind because of course this is not necessarily true, right? This is this, uh, at, at several points in my notes, I know that I refer to something um, like basically Hazinga's like foundational myth. Um, there is a story he is telling uh, about like how society develops and evolves um, in, in like in the same way that Hobbes, you know, talks about the state of nature. Um, and then he's like, and this is why we need uh, absolute monarchy, because absolute monarchy keeps this thing from happening. Um Huzinga is saying, like, we have a culture that arises in certain ways because fundamentally, right, if you scrape all of that stuff back, uh, we are we are dogs who do play bows at each other and then hop around in a field. Yes. Um, yeah. Maybe it's just worth saying here up top. Right. He's an anthropological racist. Like, yes. In some basic way. Um I, you know, I, I think much like Kawa when we talked about it. Right. I mean, mm-hmm. these these early game studies books are emerging from disciplines that have very complicated racial pasts, right? Mm-hmm. Um, or, or complicated pasts related to race. And, and as you were saying at the beginning, this is why I was asking, you know, was he an anthropologist or, or whatever? He's a historian, but especially in chapters two and three, we are going to get what you would call like comparative religion or comparative anthropology, right? I mean, mm-hmm. uh, and, and kind of um, structuralist anthropology, too right that that yeah. there are forms and functions that are transcultural and they are part of the human and mm-hmm. what he uses that for um 
you know, in the same way that he's using play as something all animals do, it's in order to, like you just said, to tell a story, but it's but it's to set up a progress narrative, right? Yeah. That that animals play and primitive humans play and primitive societies have a slightly more mythopoetic form of play. And then as you add quote unquote civilization to all those different groups, you eventually get to modern Europeans. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is fundamentally racist. <laughs> yes. <laughs> like on, just and, ba- on a basic level. <laughs> but then the other complicating factor here is that um, my, sw- my sense of Hazinga is that he is something of an anti-modernist. Mm-hmm. Right. So he's not going to say that, like, eventually you get like modern European civilization and that's great. Right. Like, because he also hates modern European civilization. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right? He, yeah. He definitely, like, I mean, I guess he's a medievalist. Right. And so he, right. and it seems like he's a medievalist because he likes the medieval period. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> not, you know, because he finds it interesting or something like that. Right. He has a, I, I think um, he has a very clear kind of reactionary fantasy of what the medieval period was like and how good it was to live then. Yeah, absolutely. And so, so the, so modernity ends up being kind of bad because it jumps the gun on some of these things and primitive societies, quote unquote, by which he means basically every non-Western group that he talks about. He mentions, uh, he, I can't, he, he says uh, at one point, the Aboriginal populations of Australia, the Americas and, uh, Africa. Yep, all of those. That that yep. mono group. <laughs> yep. That's over there. Yeah, yeah. So like all of that is built into the structure here. And so so like Kawa, right, where there's this structural racism that's built into the model, right? Mm-hmm. There is a structural racism that is built into the model of what Hozinga's trying to do with Homo Ludens. Um, and much like when that book, when we were talking about it, and we were like, "Look, I, you know, it's it, it feels difficult to teach this book or to talk about these concepts without without dealing with the kind of other side of the coin that that is part and parcel of it." it feels very difficult to talk about play in this kind of um, Hozingian context without addressing that very explicit racism that's going on here, right? Um, so we're going to probably end up talking about that quite a bit. And it's not because we're just going back to it over and over again. It's because it's part and parcel of every part of this book. Right. So, yeah. So this is the thing, right? Is like play is fundamental to every aspect of human human society. And at the same time, there are different types of human societies and therefore different types of relating to play and therefore uh, for Hazinga, like better and worse ways. <laughs> um, and it is... At least in 2019, it is not hard to track uh, his biases in terms of what he thinks are better and worse ways. Yeah, Uh, Yeah, 100%. So um, the other thing that he says, aside from uh, play being older than culture, is that play is also significant. Um, What he defines as having, quote, some sense to it. Uh, But the other way to say that is, like, uh, play is, is a... Play can serve a symbolic function, right? It's a it's a communicative function uh, between different people. So this is one of the reasons why he says that, uh, or why he ends up saying that play is kind of fundamental to culture because it is um, a, a a foundational method of figuring out how to communicate. Yeah, yeah. He says that that um, uh, this this is actually in the first page too. But he says all play means something, mm-hmm. and uh, I think the opposite. I think he. I think he also considers the opposite too. That all meaning intersects with play to mm-hmm. some degree. 
Um, he says, I, I pulled this out, this is on page three. He says, play only becomes possible, thinkable, and understandable when an influx of mind breaks down the absolute determinism of the cosmos. Yes. Um, so, so literally the 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 chaos of all things that are like beyond human kin and understanding when the human mind like cuts into that like a scalpel and creates like understandable phenomenal space you know like something that we can get our mind around that involves in in its kind of fundamental structure play and if you're you're keeping score at home this is the same argument that kant makes right this is this is the faculty of judgment Mm -hmm. um and so when people like um schiller right borrow from kant to do kind of early philosophy of play this is also something that we talked about in um linguistic games like last year um but when that happens that that's that's a moment of kind of play occurring or the play between structure and chaos uh happening in the mind so for him this this ends up being this kind of um i don't know like mass system right so so play is something that's happening in your head play is something that's happening between you and other people in the world this kind of communication function that you're talking about michael play Mm -hmm. is something that's happening at the civilizational level right it's not as if there's like I mean, there's maybe one definition of play for him, but then play appears in every possible context. I guess that's what I'm trying to get at. Right. Well, in this, so, and then the page after you just quoted, um, he talks about language, um, and he says that uh, language is kind of the, the primary play instrument because, and this has to do with this this weird claim that he makes about, like, the human mind sort of intervening in the world. Um, quote, language allows him, that is to say, like, man, uh, to distinguish, to establish, to state things. In short, to name them, and by naming them, to raise them into the domain of the spirit. In the making of speech and language, the spirit is continually, quote-unquote, sparking between matter and mind, as it were, playing with this wondrous nominative faculty. So this is really weird, to me at least, because, uh, so he's, see, he's saying that, you know, uh, language is kind of playful, right? That's, that's very Derridian of him. Um, and at the same time, like, he is making a claim about like human cognition and ontology here that is really weird just to contemplate. He's kind of saying that like the second we start using language to communicate, um, the the ability to say that a thing is a thing, right? So like we have things that we call trees, but let's just imagine that you know we're inventing language for the first time, and I say to uh, my I say to you, Cameron, right? We're we're both inventing language. We haven't had language before this point mm-hmm. i point at a tree and i say to you hey let's call this a tree right so suddenly we have this signifier uh that can uh step in and like take the place of the signified and that kind of ability of the human mind to introduce a division into perception seems to be what foundationally inaugurates play because play for Hazinga is essentially the human ability to pretend that things are true <laughs> yeah no no i think that's 100 percent right and I, I think we'll talk in just a second we'll, we'll just jump to chapter two because i think chapter two is a really fascinating moment of that but yeah i mean the moment that you point at the tree or point at this thing right and you say let's call that a tree and i'll be like no that's a tiger 
and, and that's <laughs> that's play, right? Like literally, that is the moment of the inauguration of play as a communicative function or a function of communication. You know, however we want to 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 order that. Um, because then you and I can be like, oh, the tiger's coming. Oh, right. the, cha- but the tree's feeding us. Um, right, right, right. Like you can you can pretend that something is true even when you know it's not or when you know it's non-binding. Yeah, and this is why he loves his like anthropological examples later in the book, right? Um, those are so great for him because, you know, he talks about um indigenous groups using masks mask play right so he yes. does this kind of comparative work of of talking about lots of different groups across the world um but the idea that that you take the mask and you pretend as if it's true and then you and and that means that it has a real effect so then therefore it is true and yet it it is not true right which is the same thing that we're doing all the time anytime you and I are watching Netflix and a, uh, I don't know, we're watching The Haunting of Hill House and there's a scary ghost. <laughs> um, and we get surprised, right? It's the same thing happening. Um, right, like we, or, we know that there is like no ghost. We know that this is fictional, right? But we allow uh, this thing to work on our emotions in a certain way as if it were true or real or like, you know, uh, immediate to us in a way that it isn't. Yeah, uh, or, you know, uh, an attachment to McNulty or whatever, you know, and I, t- I just want McNulty to stop drinking, right? <laughs> That's all mask play to some degree, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but but which I think, right, like, as you're pointing out, it, it's not just that um, that our basic ability to use language, you know, that, that splits reality into what we are perceiving and talking about and what we're not or whatever. There's that, but it's also, like, it's hard for me to think of an example just using what he's using an example of something that we engage with regularly that's just not play on some basic level and even the things that he explicitly says he he talks about sports toward the end of the book and even sports i think that he just misreads his own example i think sports are are definitely involved even in ways that he doesn't think about them being play oriented um and so to some degree even here at the beginning you know is this a useful theory if everything is play is it a useful thing to even be talking about? I mean, I, I think this is one of the, one of the things, uh, at least as far as I'm aware, in kind of the intellectual history side of things that Huizinga is is kind of criticized for is is just having, um, like I guess no no actual limit to what he's trying to talk about, and therefore like every potential usefulness be like extends into just absurdity right like uh so i don't know like what is what is really interesting to me about this book in the end is not so much what it is saying about play in games but this very idea that he's putting forth of like human subjectivity Mm -hmm. right i i'm very fascinated by this idea of uh that he doesn't spend that much time with right but like the the preponderance of ways in society that we pretend that things are true when we know they are not mm-hmm. or right like yeah. we, we we sort of like we the, the way that we sort of um make things real by uh sort of the active dispensation of our own belief yeah if that makes sense no so, absolutely uh and like i think that's really interesting because he does note that like there are uh i does he talk about i think he talks about it in this book um 
where uh, and maybe I'm mixing him up. So there's a there's a another author um, who's influenced the way that I read Hazinga a lot. His name is Robert Fowler, and he's a uh, Dutch uh, critical theorist. No, he's not Dutch. He's German. Um, but one of the things he talks about building off of Hazinga is that you know how sometimes um, when you uh, like are I don't know when you like walk into a piece of furniture or you like you know kick something that's like inanimate and you'll sort of mutter like oh sorry mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um or like if your car is acting up or your computer is acting up and you will like sort of mutter at it mm-hmm. um like this is a thing that faller is really interested in right the I, like we know that the the computer isn't hearing me and is not going to respond to my speech um we know that this piece of furniture that i just stumbled into is not going to be offended that i stumbled into it and yet nevertheless we perform like this weird social nicety toward it <laughs> um as if it were true but it's not um yeah. And so I think that is really interesting, right? That, uh, like, that the seed of that sort of um, bit of behavior is really interesting to me. And at the same time, I don't think it is necessarily, like, it's not what Hazinga is particularly interested in. No, he's, he talks at some point here about personification, like, as yes. a thing. Um, it, but, but I'll be honest, I mean, that goes on for maybe 10 or 15 pages, and I think you just delivered a more complicated and interesting theory of that than he does in those 15 pages. Yeah. No. Um, so, uh, there you go. Uh, Robert Fowler, there you, uh, he, he has a book whose title I don't remember, but I'll tell Cameron so you can put it in the notes. Uh, anyway, so yes, play is this weird thing that we're constantly doing in almost every possible moment. Um, it also has no moral sense. Right. It lies outside of like, as he says, wisdom and folly and equally outside truth and falsehood and good and evil. It has no moral function. Um, And then we get his kind of big uh, definition of play. He spends several pages, about six, sort of running through what he thinks are kind of what what makes play play uh, and then arrives at his full definition, which I think possibly we've quoted before with Calois, because I think Calois is all right with this definition in most respects. Um, so play is for Hazinga, quote, a free activity standing quite consciously outside, quote unquote, ordinary life as being, quote unquote, not serious, but at the same time absorbing the players, the player intensely and utterly. It is an activity connected with no material interest and no profit can be gained from it. It proceeds with its own proper boundaries of time and space according to fixed rules and in an orderly manner. It promotes the formation of social groupings which tend to surround themselves with secrecy and to stress their difference from the common world by disguise or other means. Well, that's it. Yep, that's play. Um, well, so so that's the kind of uh, first definition he gives. He gives a summary definition in chapter seven that I wrote down okay. that I want to read here too, which is okay. uh, it is it. This is him literally just restating his own definition, but it is quite different. Okay, okay. Um, uh, this is on page one thirty-two. It is an activity which proceeds within certain limits of time and space in a visible order according to rules freely accepted and outside the sphere of necessity or material utility. The play mood is one of rapture and enthusiasm and is sacred or festive in accordance with the occasion. A feeling of exaltation and tension accompanies the action, mirth, and relaxation. To follow. Yeah. Hmm. 
yeah, it's a, it's an interesting re, re or, or maybe a paring down of that initial definition, right? Yeah. Um, but and yeah. it's also like worth pointing out that like we don't have to agree with all of these parts of his definition <laughs> uh, because we maybe might not. Yeah, I don't. Um, you, you take. Uh, tell me what uh, issue you take with this, Michael. Let's let's um, run through it. So, <clears throat> uh, one of the things, and I know this is a thing that, like, specifically within uh, game studies, that Hazinga has been criticized for is is the way that he. So, on the one hand, play is the thing that gives rise to all culture, all human interaction, and so on and so forth. And at the same time. Um, he's trying to pull it out of human culture, right? He's trying to say that it's actually, it's it's simultaneously the, the foundation of all of these things we do, and it's also completely separate from them. Uh, so, like, the idea of it being a free activity that stands outside ordinary life, um, and that it's, like, not serious, these are all things that make sense up to a certain point. But then you can, if you're like listening, right, you can probably start seeing like where these definitions break down because uh, in the same way that Calois is sort of suspicious of um, the professionalization of sports and athletics, uh, that makes play not, uh, or rather it makes it too serious, right? Suddenly people have skin in the game um, in a way that they're not supposed to by this definition. Um, also, the idea that it absorbs players intensely and utterly, right? That's a that's an early version of the immersion argument that mm-hmm. you and I, Cameron, have have kind of come out against in a couple points. Um, the boundaries of time and space being very fixed for play uh, again seems fairly intuitively true, and at the same time, it might not be hard for us to think of uh, places where where certain types of play. Uh, don't have fixed boundaries, right? Or that uh, the types of human strife that will arise when uh, different parties can't agree where those boundaries are. Um, there's also, like he says, you know, there's no profit from it, which again uh, is complicated by the idea of the professionalization of, of play in sports and athletics. Um, but then also, like, what is, what is the uh, sort of social cohesion that is offered by play if not some form of profit right cultural capital or what have you yeah absolutely i mean um it's the i guess reading this definition and and this is maybe just rehearsing kawa to some point right but or, or to some degree um you can see where reading this definition you would be like oh i could write a book that's just taking issue with this one definition right yeah because <laughs> like this is why Calois creates the categories is to be like this doesn't make any sense when you put it in, in the context of gambling for example like mm-hmm. none of these planks make any sense if you think that rolling dice is a game and it obviously is right yeah and so 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 you can see like why Calois is like uh wait hold on now right um mm-hmm. but but yeah I, I, it's hard for me to um I mean, I just don't know if I agree with any of it, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you're pointing at all these kinds of, of individual planks that we could um, uh, have contests with. But I think that in 2019, and maybe this is the difference of time and, and, and space, right? The, the way that games have been adopted by every part of life and the way that play mm-hmm. has been adopted by every part of life. And I don't just mean, you know, I don't mean gamification or something like that, although that's a big thing. But that the idea that, it, well... Maybe I'll rephrase it this way. 
neoliberalism, and many, many people have written about this, but um, uh, Cyan Nye, who we've talked about last time, mm-hmm. I think, um, Cyan Nye is someone who I think is very good at this, right, or very good at talking about this, that the things that we associate with play, the flexibility, this kind of um, interface quality, and, and Aubrey Animal uh, from last episode two talked about this a little bit, that all of those good parts of play are the fundamental building blocks of neoliberalism. Like that's how it works. That's how it compels you to do stuff. Um, and that's how it makes, I don't know, um, filling out the health requirements for your, um, for, for your health insurance, right? And encouraging you to get a uh, Fitbit, that kind mm-hmm. of stuff. That's not just gamification. It's thinking about play and thinking about um, compelled activity as something that is good and interesting and all about your personal enjoyment of that activity rather than them trying to minimize risk on their end, right? right. Um, I, and maybe that's what I'm working my way around to saying, like I'm talking my way to it, but, but maybe that's what I'm trying to get at is that play and risk are the same thing here. Um, mm. And if play and risk, because he calls it chaos, right? Or, or <laughs> the intervention of the mind into chaos. So the intervention of the mind into risk is neoliberalism on a fundamental level. If the marketplace and the the chaos of the market, if what it means to be a good citizen or a good consumer or a good functionary within neoliberalism is being able to look at a market, to be look at thousands of options laid out in front of you and then make good rational choices that are most beneficial to you, right? I I think this is a a, a well-established part of neoliberalism. If that's the case, then being a good player is the most important part of our current economic system. Right. Like like, on some fundamental level. To to paraphrase a a well-known tweet, I think, um, the neoliberal mind looks out into the chaotic universe and says, what if I monetized the chaos? Mm. What if I benefited from it? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, this is the narrative of... um, the, the breaking up of markets in Eastern Bloc countries, right? I mean, th- this is not when we when we talk about neoliberalism. I you know, there's the the, the famous uh, another famous tweet that's uh, no one can define neoliberalism, right? But, but <laughs> uh, as we talked about in the Games of Empire episode a little bit as well, I I, I think you can uh, do a pretty solid definition of it. Um, and it is both the political program of breaking markets, right, creating more chaos, and it's the kind of personal responsibility angle of of grappling with those uh, mm-hmm. using whatever means that you can to grapple and, and, and control them. Yep. All to say, I think that, you know, if this is the definition of play, then yes, everything might be play. Um, but then it's perhaps not very useful for us to even talk about it in those terms. Right. Um, well, and the other terms. thing, the other thing to uh, pull in here. Uh, and that's important because this will also come up later, is that he has this weird, like, he has this definition of play, and then he has, like, these stingers, right? These things that sort of just, like, suddenly follow along, um, where he says that additionally, uh, play is, quote, a contest for something or a representation of something. And the idea that it's a contest is going to be very, very important for him um, because, uh the something that Kawa talked about was Aegon. Aegon is a huge thing for Hazinga. Um, 
and this will become especially true in later chapters, and we'll talk about that. Um, but then there's also representation of something. Now, the representation of something is important because that is the uh, quote-unquote more primitive one. That mm-hmm. is to say, uh, he goes in and says that, you know, basically, he because everything is play, he says all archaic ritual is play, right? It's, it's about... Um, playing at uh, appeasing the gods in the hopes that they will actually be appeased or something like that and he uh talks about this um he talks about the vedic rituals he he compares uh ancient greek ceremonies and quote african religions today um which is definitely a comparison you can make i can see no problem with that Mm -hmm. Uh, (laughs) because uh-huh um but basically right he says uh so what he's doing right just if if you're not like someone with all these books in your head like me what he is doing right is he is very conspicuously placing like contemporary african society in uh the mediterranean past right in the european past um he is like this is part of that civilizational uh, progress narrative that we've talked about. So yeah, um, yeah but anyway, they are they have gotten to the same point that Europeans were two or more three thousand years ago, right? Explicitly, explicitly. Uh, um, so, uh, but in in the modern context, this is more like, and this is one of his good examples is is uh, the way that parents and pretend uh, that santa claus exists (laughs) right where like parents will be like oh you know santa will do this or that trying to get their kids to do things and it makes the kids like behave i guess um even though like we know santa claus does not exist nevertheless uh santa claus's presence is made real by by our uh pretending of him um and then he says that make-believe is kind of the primary category of these primitive religions uh as he calls them uh so sorry to interrupt to talk about santa claus but what is interesting to me here is that to some degree his argument about these things not working as well as they used to or something in modernity has Mm -hmm. been proven true by the elf on the shelf huh because it's not just like santa claus as this abstract force who like lives on the north pole and, and is always watching you or whatever yeah um there's an elf and he's right there <laughs> he's looking at you this and you better fa- not be bad in front of him to what extent is the elf on the shelf santa claus's version of the amazon echo <sighs> the thing you invite into your home that surveils you at all times mm-hmm. um it what is you think? just that you know what okay here's a, here's a called shot here's a called cultural shot yeah. There will be an Amazon Echo app in the next two years mm-hmm. that will allow parents to have their children talk to Santa Claus. Mm. Yep. Yep. Mm-hmm. Called shot. The ultimate elf on the shelf. The elf so. in the cloud. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> um. <laughs> So we have completed chapter one. <laughs> <laughs> yep, that's a. Oh, I uh, just want to say uh, one thing too that I thought was interesting yeah. is that this is a place where he first begins to flag the magic circle argument, although we don't get the whole thing here, and so yeah. we'll wait till we do it. And he also says something interesting, which is that um, this is a quote on page twelve: a play community tends to become permanent even after the game is over, which is something that I, I you know, this is not something that shows up in Kawa, but. Um, 
you know, the idea that you might form a play community around the same, the idea of playing just anything with the same group of people or, or having the same kind of play ethic and then that moves around to different games. I think that's a huge, huge part of like contemporary gaming culture. I mean, you know, the Range Touch Discord is a really good example of that, of where mm-hmm. we all enjoy playing together. And, and if you uh, enjoy playing games, you enjoy game studies, study buddies, you should come join the Discord. But, um, but, but we don't have like certain games we play. We play a lot of different stuff. Um, right. There's like regular Sunday tabletop gaming that happens that I'm I'm not even there for. Like it's just happening organically. It's the same kind of people over and over again. Um, but because these people just enjoy playing for the sake of playing, as opposed to uh, whatever. But that's all. Sorry, there's just two things I want to say about chapter one. Chapter two, the play concept as expressed in language. Cameron, would you be surprised to find out that quote modern European languages unquote conceive of play more quote distinctly and broadly than others yes he specifically says i don't remember which group because this is this is where the like ultra fast machine gun level of citations begin happening Mm -hmm. but citations without citations meaning that he just starts name dropping constantly through the rest of this book very specific sometimes ethnic groups and then he says what they do, and then he says like how that is indicative of their relationship to play. Yes, and like a number one, you cannot fact check any of this. Mm-hmm. A a number two, uh, this was written in the nineteen thirties, and so it's probably hella wrong. <laughs> Like, just an incredible... So it's like looking through a kaleidoscope at culture and then being like, yeah, some of these shapes of blue are very similar to these other shapes of blue, Um, you know, without ever... You know, there's no ground to any of this, right? So to some degree, this is like him playing with the idea of of play. Right. So that's that's all to say, yeah, he loves the idea that that modern European languages, quote-unquote, as if those are all a monolith that they have a word, his specific focus here is that they have a word for play, and then they have a word for, like, poker. Uh, yes. Whereas, whereas uh, non-modern European languages might have a number of different words for different games, and they might not have a notion of game as a category. Right. Something right, like right, that. Right, right, um, Yeah, and I guess the other thing that... that this becomes an interesting artifact for, right, is that writing before the war, right, pre-war academics, um, like, citational practices don't exist. Yeah. Right? Not in the way that we think of them. It, it is, like, exactly what he's doing here. This just kind of, like, rapid-fire name-dropping. And, like, as as no doubt you know from Professor So-and-So's book, right? <laughs> um because also, like the academic world is, it is it is incredible to uh, sort of conceive of like how much smaller it really was back then. <laughs> yeah, and we um, were. I, I mean, not just that too. But this lives on in really weird ways to me. Um, mm-hmm. You know, one of those ways is what we call like the French theory method. But obviously, this is more like a European academic method before a certain time period. But you know, you can read Derrida, for example, and you can pick up if you're aware of like the milieu he's writing in and what he's referencing when he's actually citing things, you can be aware that, oh, he is talking about, say, Leotard here. Mm-hmm. Like he's explicitly engaging with the postmodern condition, like the book. But that will not be cited and the name will not be in there at all. Um, and you're just like, well, I guess that's like the French theory way of doing things. Um, 
you know, we were talking a little bit off mic about uh, something else earlier, but this is also kind of how game studies right now works. Um, there are lots <laughs> of times when people will be referring to uh, other texts or other books, and they will not be citing those things, either because there's an assumption of general knowledge, because we're, you know, kind of an insular field, um, or because they just literally don't want to cite that person, but they have to engage with the argument. Um, and so it's interesting the way that this kind of um, earlier academic m- mode lives on uh, in certain practices. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, this is uh, one of like the, the basic point of, of this entire chapter um, is that modern European languages, again, the, the biggest quote unquote I can possibly summon there, uh, these these languages uh, can conceive of play and games as things apart from specific games, right? They they have concepts, literally like the, the subtitle of the book, the play concept. Um, and this is one of the things that makes them, I guess, more like progressed or civilized or something. Um, and at the same time, he also, he drops, he pulls out two uh, terms from ancient Greek here um, that he's going to come up on again and again, and we got these through Calois as well, Aegon and Paideia as um, a sort of ancient Greek definition between different types of play. Yeah, um, and in my version of the book, they are rendered only in Greek letters. Yes. And so I really had to, I had to, because I don't, you know, I don't know Greek. Um, and so I really had to like flex some brain muscles to be like, all right, what could this be? And I, and I had to like start sounding out the, like the letters that I do know in Greek. And I was like, what could this be? Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, but so Aegon being um, uh, contest here and then Paideia kind of being free play or, mm-hmm. or um, uh, the more broad sense of chaos of play, I guess. Yeah. is the way of thinking of it um you asked in your in your notes hold on whose notes am i looking at these are your notes okay um mm-hmm. you asked in your notes i think you asked if they were binaries or is that later mm. oh no that's in a later chapter okay so yeah. hold on yeah i should so that was something i did want to say though is that we we know these terms from calwa and we know that they're kind of opposed in it there in that text here not so much right they are mostly um for hazinga two different uh modes of play so paideia is like child's play um but not in quite the haughty way that uh um Calwa would would say that because and this is part of like the weird sort of reactionary impulse in hazinga um the child's play is is like the first play right it is the original play right it is yeah. the closest to like straight up animal play and therefore the closest to kind of the the generative fundament of all human culture mm-hmm. right so there's that there's this romantic notion of 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 uh childhood and innocence and potential that is kind of operating under the surface here um and then there's Aegon, which is uh, a little bit more adult a little bit more civilized because these are the contests and uh Hazinga tracks this with like stages in cultural development, right? Cultures begin with uh, they they play in I don't know how you would make this an adjective, but pideistic ways, mm-hmm. um, and then you enter into an age of Aegon, which is kind of like the uh, uh, like post. I think the way he puts it is like the post heroic age. Yeah. So uh, the model that he uses here, he's clearly using um, Greek ancient greek society as his model so he's saying that during the time of uh, of myths 
right? That was the time of Paideia, right? All of this weird generative cultural play. And then suddenly, like, people start writing things down and keeping records. And this is when you, in, and they have bureaucracies. And this is when we enter into the game of, or to the age of Aegon. Um, and this is where, like, the Olympics come from, right? Because the ceremonies be, get instituted to commemorate um, the things that happened in, in the age of Paideia. Yeah. Yeah, it's very much he, he calls this uh, I think in this chapter he calls this the platonic idea of because uh, he's borrowing directly from Plato to get mm-hmm. this kind of uh, structure and he disagrees with it sometimes but I think he largely just absorbs that like this yeah. is actual facts about like how play happens. Yeah. Um, and, it, it, and so this leads him right like as you were just saying right that the, the minute we begin to write things down and create kind of a written record. Um, that fundamentally changes the way that we're engaging with play. This is a, a common argument, and, it, and it's an interesting. It's interesting that we read the Aubrey Annable last time, and now we're reading this because in that episode we talked about um, the difference between um, the linguistic turn um, mm-hmm. as like a theory idea and the affective turn. Um, you know, affect, affective turn when it happens in the, you know, depends on where you kind of locate it, but maybe in the 90s uh, and up through the early 2000s, the, it's the idea that um, there is something beyond the grasp of language that is what we do to be looking at theoretically. I think Huizinga here is at the very beginning of the linguistic turn, which is, mm-hmm. you know, this major kind of movement in in philosophy and thinking, which holds that language is the heart of the way that we grasp the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when he here is talking about that in the way that you kind of kind of phrased it, Michael, I mean, that's Walter Ong's argument, right? Morality and literacy, that there yes. is a um, fundamental shift in human phenomenal and conceptual grasping of the world when we go from talking about things and then communicating things orally into inscribing it and then making it quote unquote more real. And that mm-hmm. not just changes like the way we deal with things historically, but it changes the very way we perceive the world around us. Right. Uh, precisely. Um, and then the other thing that comes up in this chapter uh, more, more clearly than it has before. And that will come up again later is so he says play is a thing by itself as page 45 the play concept as such is of a higher order than is seriousness for seriousness seeks to exclude play whereas play can very well include seriousness now so what he's trying to do here is uh get around the the kind of uh i think probably common sense argument that there are things that are serious and that there are things that are play um because he takes issue in in the same way that actually kawa does um with the idea that play is sort of subservient that play is subservient to some sort of cultural function so like you know like the little girls play with dolls because they're practicing to grow up and become mommies right like uh even though like i just made that a very feminist kind of sounding thing these guys aren't going to aren't going to truck with that but at the same time they are not um they don't think that that is the the whole dynamic of play mm-hmm. and hazinga is trying to say that like you can you can always deny seriousness by being playful but you can never de- uh, deny playfulness by being serious if that yeah, makes the, sense. Yeah, there will always be uh, the joke. There will always be the um, little silly thing 
that will break down the facade of seriousness. Right. There's in, like interestingly enough, there's a, there's a very uh, and I m- mentioned this in my notes. Right. He, in some ways, uh, occasionally here he reminds me of Mikhail Bakhtin, um, who I don't know if you've ever talked about, but, but Bakhtin was a, a Soviet uh, literary historian, social historian, who was very influential to me as a little baby. Uh, scholar, um, and he his, his no, most, as, a, as a literal little baby. Yeah, as when I was a child, and my mother was reading uh, reading Dostoevsky to me. Um, <laughs> uh, but he has a book called Rabelais and His World that is about uh, this. Bakhtin has this the book Rabelais and His World where he talks about sort of play and seriousness, um, and specifically in kind of medieval France, and. I'm just going to say, if you are interested in this division between play and seriousness, go read Bakhtin instead of Hazinga, um, because that that the way that he talks about these uh, is very similar, but ends up being much more useful. <laughs> yeah, and it's grounded in a close reading rather than like a, well, sometimes I guess it's a comparative anthropological moment, but... It, it relies more on here's a text and here's what the text does than here's an ethnic group that I've never encountered and I've only read about in a book. Yeah. And here's how their conception of the world works. Right. You know, and, a bit. and yeah, like, and I recommend it just because uh, by the end of this book, I don't understand what Hazinga is doing with play and seriousness. It does not, like, it gets so weird and it doubles back on itself. Like, do, do, did you have that same experience? Uh, yes, I, okay. um, I I was going to save this to the end, but I don't think people should read this book. Yeah, <laughs> like in in a general sense, I don't I don't know if the argument needs to be engaged with. I think the basic claim is so uh, broad as to, and this is what I've kind of gotten to a little bit already, right? I think the basic claim is so broad as to be unhelpful, um, <laughs> and. And um, I don't think there's anything here. I, I think this book is an important historical artifact. I don't think that it is a, a like a brilliant theoretical tool. No, I straight I, up, I absolutely agree. Right? Um, if you are in, like as I said, like if you if you are in game studies and you want to engage with this book, like these first couple chapters, like read those and get your footing, and the rest of it, we're going to probably blitz through it pretty quickly, um, because. It is just, I, there's, there's like a 10 page digression on wigs. Yes. Yes. I can even Um, tell you, I wrote that down. Uh, (laughs) So did I. (laughs) Yeah. uh, Or specifically 184, 185. This is my note. Wig talk. Okay. So it's not 10 pages, but still it's quite a bit of talk about wigs. Oh no, that's Um, just the core of it. It keeps going. Like there's more of it, but that's just the beginning of wig talk. And I'll be honest, that's not the only part of this book where wigs come up as like an important play element. And maybe they are, but really he's talking about style and fashion. And that seems to me to be a little bit different part of play. It could maybe use its own chapter or something. I don't know. (sighs) So anyway, um, the third chapter, um, that we're kind of moved into, unless you have something else to add about chapter two. Uh, no, I don't. I mean, j- just kind of uh, just reiterating that if th- y- a, I don't find this whole book that helpful, as I just said, but B part of the reason I don't find it helpful is that it is a book that is, like I said, at the beginning of the linguistic turn. And we have had many, many kind of academic movements and responses to that, that have, I think wholly annihilated the idea that language is the core functioning of, of humans 
like mm-hmm. in a general sense, right? Like if we're willing to make broad, massive structuralist claims about humanity, I think those broad structuralist claims can't ever center around language. Obviously, for for uh, you know, kind of disability reasons, um, you know, that seems mm-hmm. insufficient. Um, but also for reasons um, that that there are things that go on with people that don't resolve in language and that don't go back to language. And so, if that's your beginning place, we're talking about comparison. That's always going to, as far as I'm concerned, that's always going to be downstream from what's actually happening. Like, mm-hmm. I, I just don't think language is the beginning of these kinds of things. Um, so even if, you know, just to make myself very clear, even if I accepted that this was a useful book initially, I think that the way that it theoretically grounds itself in this kind of linguistic turn kind of disqualifies itself from from operating in the framework that I appreciate the most, which is kind of a historical materialist one um, that really looks to broad patterns in material reality. Language is one of those patterns. It is not the pattern that, uh, you know, it doesn't have full sway over the whole apparatus. Right. So that's that's my big thing. But chapter three, sorry. Yes. Well, chapter three, luckily, I've already summarized um, <laughs> because it is the playing contest to civilizing functions. And this is just what I said uh, earlier, where he makes that distinction between uh, Aegon and Paideia. And Paideia is kind of like earlier prehistorical play. Like it's the play of children and the play of animals. It's the generative play. Um, and then as things become kind of basically as a play, results in the rise of social formations, right? People uh, band together and you start getting um, like the tribe or the, the, the city state or whatever. Uh, you move out of this age of heroism, as he calls it, into uh, an age of agonistic uh, play where everything becomes kind of formalized, ritualized uh, ceremony. And this is like where the, the Olympics come from. Mm-hmm. Um, now, what he has done here, then, is also something that comes up that we've talked about before by setting up this kind of progressive narrative where uh, sort of the, the, the growth of culture um, changes the character of play. This is how he also sets himself up later to be like, and now in our current situation, we've let cr- culture grow too much, basically. <laughs> Um, yeah. And it has ruined play. Like, I guess I guess he would have been fine with, like, Aegon, right? But we have gone too far. Uh, and that uh, that's, that's near the end. But just so you know, like, this chapter is where he sets up that kind of linear trajectory of history that is essentially going to bite him in the ass. Yeah, yeah. And, he, and this is also where I think it gets really confusing for me. Because on one hand, he is saying, you know, this is what you said at the very beginning of the episode, but it's worth reiterating, that on one hand, everything is play, and you can go too far. But on the other hand, we do want things that are the outcome of play that give us particular social standing. And so it's like, I mean, it's almost like he's preaching moderation, right? In like a very Protestanty kind of way yeah. of like, you know, you you can well, be. Zone sixty three says we want to be honored for our virtues, right? Um, mm-hmm. the, the outcome of play, and it's like you can play, um, you, you can play football with with your buddies, and it's okay to be like, you know, I don't know, for your like inter church league, you know, to win <laughs> that, that's okay. But the minute that you like join the NCAA, you have <laughs> committed a sin, right? Right, uh, and it's just this weird kind of boundary drawing it's a boundary drawing that is known only by its effects 
and it's since we don't have I, uh, sorry I'm, I'm saying a million things at one time but he is saying that we know it's bad because we've hit the limit and then bad things happened but his progress narrative suggests that that's always going to happen if the quote-unquote African religions got, you know, progressed 3,000 years or 4,000 years, you know, by his, his metric here, then they would also hit this place, right? right. right. Like, there's, it, like, it, there's never a point where you get the sense that, like, something different could have happened. <laughs> that's, yeah, that's exactly what I'm saying, right? It's, it, it is, like, a progress narrative that has a like an uncontrollable controlled by god almost outcome that you can't do anything about right <laughs> other than like personal responsibility and moderation or something like that right mm -hmm. like like you one would have to become like the amish yes like like that's the the only rational outcome here right and so like as you said like this whole system ends up biting him in the ass and, he, and it bites him in the ass because it is it, a, because it's, like, incredibly racist, but B, because it's just illogical. It doesn't have any internal consistency to it. There's no way out of it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, There's given no the terms way. that he's set up. Yeah, and I don't know how you could, like... I just don't know what the complaint is then. It seems like everything's working fine. Yeah. If this is a progress narrative, right? Because <laughs> progress is happening. This is obviously the next logical state of European culture or whatever. Yeah. Um, despite the fact that, you know, it seems very strange to me that this is not in communication with fascism in any way. Well, I mean, it is, I think. Well, I, implicitly, but right? Implicitly, right? It, it is, it is. Uh, so, this is so the other thing to, to really emphasize here is that this agonistic uh, phase of culture. Um, that occurs, right? That everything, this this is a problem for me personally, right? This is a thing that I see coming up uh, as a problem um, in a lot of the ways that he's thinking about play because he essentially assumes that after the heroic age ends, all play is going to be based on an agonistic relationship, on some form of competition. And that is just some pure ideology, <laughs> or rather like it, it it really offers itself up to pure ideology by assuming that a a conflict um in a very particular sense right agon is conflict in a very particular sense um for uh uh Hozinga, that this is a fundamental unchanging kind of desire for humans that we always want to be recognized because of our virtues which i think like that's true, I guess, probably, right? Like, we probably want to have some sort of validation for what we think are the good things we've done. But the way that he understands this is that we are always fighting everyone else for that recognition. Yeah. Um, and this is the other part of his historical trajectory that really goes off the rails because, I mean, so I'm going to I'm going to go I'm going to do two chapters, two whole chapters here real quick. Oh please, please do. I mean, we're. Okay. I, my plan was to skip the, the, the all the intervening chapters. So please, just is however you want to cover them. Let's do. Okay, that. okay, okay. So the next chapter is called "Play in the Law." Mm -hmm. Here is basically what Hazinga has to say here. Uh, at a certain point in history, uh, legal cases, or like what we would have understood as what we would understand as kind of like legal cases, court hearings, um, lawsuits, uh, were not really lawsuits. They were essentially primitive contests, right? It was about yeah. two sides who had two different um, 
takes on a situation and they would go before a mediator and they would argue their cases. And um, it was all kind of like a little wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Everyone was having a good time. It was all very playful. Um, And then somehow stoicism came about and (laughs) made uh, juristic eloquence of the play character. They took the juristic eloquence of the play character because for Hazinga, right, the idea behind this idea uh, these like weird like playful lawsuits is that the point is not so much to discern what is right or wrong in the matter but to see who can best and most sort of beautifully make their case right like that's really what's at stake yeah it's all um, sophistry right it's all sophistry so stoicism comes in and makes the law serious and this is bad right it makes them makes it confirm to their severe standards of truth and dignity as he puts it um then the next chapter play in war now it may not surprise you to learn that Huzinga thinks that warfare was play and it's all just fun and games right it's all just uh people trying to duke it out for prestige and recognition um but that agonistic impulse that's where that can bite you because you can stop being honorable about war Right. People should go to war not for resources and like territory. And in fact, Huizinga says, um, if you look at history, many times they really haven't. They have gone to war for prestige, for honor, uh, for all of these ideals. Right. Um, Which is a really bizarre claim to make, but it also sort of makes sense, I think, given like when he's writing and who he seems to be. He's essentially uh, like. In many ways, Huizinga is caught up in a very 19th century romantic notion of, like, civilization, right? Yeah. Despite the fact that he hates the 19th century, which he does quite a bit. Um, he, <laughs> yeah, he but looks he, at, he's an inheritor of it, right? Yes, yeah. But he looks at history, and he sees warfare, and he sees all of these people being like, oh, we're fighting for this glory or that honor, and he's like, that's true. I don't doubt them at all. Right. And all of all of the things that they got from war, consequently, like, you know, resources and territory, that was just sort of those were after effects. Right. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Just like even as you're laying it out, too. Right. Like I like a a couple thoughts here. I did not pick up on this one when I was reading it. But that play in the law chapter, the way that he organizes that. He pulls the exact same move that contemporary white supremacists do, right? Yes. Because he locates the birth of the law in the Greek context and not in the Jewish context. Mm-hmm. Like, very explicitly. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, this has been a debate in medieval studies and in, um, in like, the classics very recently, right? About how, how do you... Uh, that, that there have been forms of historical analysis in the 20th century in particular that dovetail very nicely with a white, white supremacist narrative of like Europe and the birth of culture and the birth of history and the exclusion or, or you know, anti-Semitism, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and how do you combat that um, uh, efficiently by telling the correct history? And so, A, that's very fascinating. And also there's a weird, as you're talking through war here too, there is this utter ignorance or uncaring um He's just not paying attention to his own local history of the past 40 years of German reunification. Yeah. 
which <laughs> has nothing to do with honor or glory or anything. That that's nationalist state building. I mean, maybe that has you know maybe that's tied up in those other narratives, but that's a very practical geopolitical purpose here, right? right? Right. And then so basically war gets bad for Hazinga um, when cultural chauvinism comes into play. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, it's sort of it's it's worthwhile to note that for some reason he hasn't noticed cultural chauvinism at play in war at any point prior to when he is writing. Yeah. <laughs> um, like <laughs> nationalism, which at this point has been around for, you know, a good maybe what in, in in like it's in the sense that we're talking about uh, for for like the 30s, right? Nationalism has been around in in that form for at least like maybe 50 years. Yeah, something like. I mean, yeah, yeah. I think that European nationalism comes around in like the 1880s, 1870s, yeah. something like that. Yeah, around yeah, like, when you start when you start associating a nation state with with um, a group of ideals and values, and often an ethnicity, right? Those, right. Those things all get lumped together in nationalism. Right. So uh, obviously what happens is World War One happens. Right. And that is a war of of nationalism. Um, and that's what's ruined war is like that's what made that's what made World War One so bad is that it was a nationalist war on various fronts rather than. <laughs> yeah. Rather than just some fun times of people like trying to see who had the, who could build the, the deepest trenches. <laughs> um uh, and you know what like and this is the thing like for 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 listeners who have not read this book this seems like something we might be making up but he literally it's in this chapter somewhere he's talking about the german strategy of trying to take france um and he positions it as like this this these heroic narratives of like i'm going to have the best attack no i'm going to have the best defense and then those things becoming corrupted in this yeah. war as opposed yeah. to that like those stories are stories that doesn't have anything to do with like on the ground command right <laughs> right um so yeah like that those were the two chapters i wanted to go through because that gives you a sense of i think where a lot of his moral priorities are uh I, uh, this um, I'm, uh, just this makes me think. This whole book is written like someone who is playing Crusader Kings two. Yes, yes. Like, no, that's this how is the logic of, of that kind of game. Yeah, right. And that's something that is so fascinating to me. Right, like the way that this anticipates, like the way that Hazinga, and especially. Like, I'm not like, so we have to be careful about how, like, what we're going to say that I'm saying here. But, like, when he says that play has no sort of, like, inherent moral value, and in fact, it stands outside of morality and it stands outside of this and that, like, these are Gamergate arguments. Yeah. Right? Like, it is so weird um, seeing this stuff, like, that is. I, I don't like. I'm not saying gamer gators are like out here reading Hazinga, but um, this attitude toward play that Hazinga is is building um, has a lot of parallels with the reactionary element in contemporary game culture. Yeah, because um, the play. I mean, it's the the benefit, right? If if play is everything, then it's nothing at all, and if it's everything, then then all of the the wide variety of human experience must be accountable to play. And if that's true, then it can't be political because Mm -hmm. that would mean everything would be political, Michael. Oh my gosh. Right. I mean, everything was a contest of different ideas. Right. And I mean, and play is getting corrupted by these weird outsiders, uh, who we're not going to name. Um, (laughs) so the next chapter is called playing and knowing, 
uh, the basic thing that he argues here is that, uh, in it, again, right, in his weird kind of like prehistorical fantasized period of like this is this is a recurring move for him right there is some period before the the historical record proper um where he doesn't like he might be pulling this from things he's reading he might just be projecting he doesn't cite so you don't know um there were uh, essentially kind of like riddle contests uh like sacred riddle contests and um these were a sacred game uh that in some way were intended to be by by making confusing statements that could be read in multiple ways um this was in some way trying to uh you know, bring people together in their knowledge of what he calls the agonistic structure of the universe. <laughs> um, so, like, not only is Aegon, like, really good, or, like, I don't know, some type of good for Hazinga, right? But it becomes a, a like, it is an ontological core. <laughs> yeah. Um, then he moves on to the next chapter, which is play and poetry. Guess what? Poetry is a type of play. Are you surprised? <laughs> um... And uh, he says that poesis, right, is a play function because, and you can see this in how I was talking about language earlier, right, but if poetry is a particular way of interfacing with language and if language is a way of playing with, like, our perceptions of the world, then clearly poetry is play. Um, I'm going to quote this line uh, from page 119 because it's really bad. The mythical imaginings of savages, those children of nature, concerning the origins of existence often contain the seeds of a wisdom which will find expression in the logical forms of a later age. So that's his historical belief, right? This kind of supersessionary racism. Yeah, when, um, we, um, when we talk about the book being racist, we're, <laughs> it's not like... You don't have to read deep to find it. Mm-hmm. You know, I just want to make that clear in case you're you're just listening. You're not reading the book. When when we when we say, "Hey, the imagination of this book and the way it conceives of the world is racist," it's not like we're reading between the lines. Mm-hmm. It's just the text, right? <laughs> it's explicitly, explicitly like a like a European racism. And you mm-hmm. might say, "Hey, it was just the time. You know, this is the way people were." Except that's not true. <laughs> there are plenty of people who did not think this and wrote against it in this time period, especially in the 1950s. Uh, yep. Or, you know, by 1950, when this dude was writing, there are lots of people. Post-colonialism had already kicked off, or, or, or uh, anti-colonial movements had already yeah. kicked off. and had been going for a long time. Mm-hmm. Haitian Revolution had already happened. <sighs> so, uh... so, you know, I just want to flag that. Just so yeah. people know in their head that this is not this is not like oh it's the context of when he was writing it might be the context of like his specific you know middle European context but it's not like this was a like the belief and he just mm-hmm. couldn't see his way out of it he is very explicitly constructing a racist history of 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 the world mm-hmm. but sorry. No, no, no. Like that's like that's why I wanted to quote that line because I think it's like a very clear encapsulation of like how he thinks about the world and how the world progresses and like why that is a problem. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so then the next chapter is sort of a building off of poetry, sort of specifically into what he calls mythopoesis, which is essentially, uh, for some reason, um, the the distinction he makes for kind of like the ways that certain sorts of poetry uh, become myth. 
right, culture, like myth, the, they're rather the ways that in con, in the contemporary society, uh, certain forms of uh, poetry and artistic expression and certain forms of narrative be, become a sort of our version of what were myths before, right? The, the idea that uh, the, the contemporary, like, Norse pantheon is the Marvel cinematic universe, right? Like, uh, so he says that there are basically three types of poetry, and this, these are classical divisions, right? There's lyric, epic, and drama. Um, and lyric is always kind of playful because lyric is what we think of when we think of, like, sonnets. These are things, um, uh, at least originally, uh, that are written to kind of uh, express emotion, and they circulate uh, very often in manuscript among um, a coterie of readers, right? The publishing doesn't work in quite the way that, it, in, in history, doesn't work in quite the way it does now, especially with lyric poetry, which will get written down into a manuscript, and then you have, like, 15 of your friends read it, and they pass it on to someone who they think might like it. Um so that always stays playful because it's like secret and hidden and it's like this weird little game between you and your friends writing and reading each other's poetry um then there's the epic which starts out as playful because it is meant to be recited and then it stops being playful because it starts getting written down and people are just reading it and then um there's drama which never uh breaks away from playfulness because it must always be performed um isn't that great, right? Shakespeare, he says, is so good because he merges um, the history of vaticination, which is like a sort of prophetic, right, like religiously inspired poetry with classicism. <laughs> You've written um, in your notes, good for him. Right, like this is like this is one of those things that people say about Shakespeare, right? It's like today, maybe you know, Harold Bloom is like the primary example where Harold Bloom will be like, um, you know, Hamlet is a Kafka character written by Cervantes. Great, right? Like that's the sort of thing Harold Bloom will say. <laughs> um, uh, and so, like here, Hazinga is like Shakespeare uh, merges vaticination and classicism. Like, okay whatever <laughs> like you're not going to cite that you're just going to make that claim you're not going to explain it for me in any way yeah um then we move into chapter nine which is philosophy and this is weird because uh basically Hoisinga argues that greek sophistry um which we've already talked about uh, with regard to the law uh is sort of the play origin of philosophy so sophists are the people who are wandering around between the uh, ancient greek city-states um who aren't really uh pursuing knowledge for the love of it uh they're pursuing it because you can be really good at it. And this is this is this is a chapter that is actually very interesting to me, like personally, because this is a concern that comes up in uh, the early modern period as a lot of these classical texts are kind of being resuscitated. Um, and the problem still isn't solved. Right. Which is that you can make the most beautiful um, sort of sonorous, persuasive argument in the world for the worst thing. Mm -hmm. right like the beauty of an argument actually has nothing to do with its moral content um and philosophy for Hazinga is uh when these sort of traveling rhetoricians whose entire sort of uh raison de terre apparently is just to um go places and kind of do speeches and make disputations for kind of uh like the the amusement of the public and of mm -hmm. of the aristocracy and get their money and their boarding that way, um, when uh, Plato and Socrates come onto the scene, um, and Socrates uh, 
the character if we're going to assume that he is just a fictional person but socrates the real person uh whatever like turns sophistry back on itself and takes all of the weird little like uh argumentative tics and like the ways that uh sophists were expected to like you know set up your opponent um to like step into a trap and then be like gotcha right even if it wasn't like terribly right in a uh a fuller moral sense um it looked good right it's youtube debate again tapping into this weird like white supremacy thing uh the point is not like making a cohesive and good argument it's about arguing in such a way that your opponent can't argue back yeah yeah right? that that you have to begin to engage in this like alternate universe where other facts are correct right <laughs> in order to even engage with the argument right Right. And so, like, what Plato and Socrates kind of do is they turn the sophist mindset back on itself. Um, and this is why Socrates is the way he is in those dialogues where he's, like, constantly, like, uh, leading people to, like, make really stupid uh, mistakes and then be like, and that is a philosophical truth. Good job, kid. Um, or is it? I don't really know. I'm just I'm just Socrates. Man, my <laughs> wife is annoying. Um <laughs> So the, I mean, that's the, um, yeah, I mean, this is the thing that kind of hit me in this chapter. And you'll notice in my notes, this just says, this is the same goddamn argument as the previous chapter. Yeah. This is like when I really got like, uh, fed up with, with the, the way the book is, is written. But, um, uh, what, what kind of, uh, hits me here about the philosophy is that this is just Plato. Like mm-hmm. this argument about sophistry, this is in the Republic. He is just yes. replicating Plato. And as we were talking about earlier, that he calls this way of thinking play in his kind of like historical trajectory of play, the platonic method. And mm-hmm. so for me, it's, it's at this point, I'm like, well, why, why not just read the Plato? It's not any harder yeah. to read. It's more right. boring, perhaps, but... <laughs> well, and that was the other thing that I wanted to point out, is that, like, also, the story he is telling here is Plato's story. Mm-hmm. So, he, so the story he's telling is that Plato comes along, and he changes everything, which happens <laughs> yeah. to be the story that Plato is telling. <laughs> yeah. um, so, like, you know, just think about that real hard. Uh, take it with a grain of salt. Um, and then the other thing I want to point out is that his uh, sort of his constant desire for play to be kind of like a sort of free association where the stakes are sort of low. Um, he said, he says, you know, for the Greek, the treasures of the mind. So this is one, this is why like rhetoric and disputation are, are treated so lightly in this period. He's saying for the Greek, the treasures of the mind were the fruits of leisure. Um, so the thing to pay close attention to here, right. Is he's right. Right. Okay. So, uh, the people who are learning these things, the people that the the sophists and the rhetoricians are being paid to teach are the young aristocrats. These are the free men, right? They have leisure because they have slaves. Yeah. Right, and this is where we get the term liberal arts because this goes into Latin as, as the artes liberales, which is to say the arts that are uh, suited to a free man. That's what liberal there means. Um so it is just another thing I think that you, we need to keep in mind that uh, there is a class structure um, that, you know, in our time is maps very readily onto a, a, a racist superstructure as well of, uh, you know, who is allowed to do these things, who has the 
benefit of being able to be like, well, I'm not really arguing to to make some sort of grand point, right? I'm just sort of arguing to argue, right? I'm arguing to be right. I'm arguing to do well. Um, the people who have the benefit of not really having to consider the morals uh, or the ethics of their arguments and can just make it all a kind of like fun game between equals um, are people who own slaves. Yeah, um, and that I mean, this is interesting too. The way that this maps onto um, like the contemporary way that that lots of people on all sides of the political spectrum talk about the liberal arts today, which is that. Um, certain people like the world needs more plumbers. The United States needs more plumbers. It's like an actual fact that is true. We we don't we don't have enough. Um, and mm-hmm. so because of that, you know, and I see this all the time in, in being involved in higher education. Right? There is a narrative and a it is a, a cultural narrative that's becoming stronger as a as a bipartisan issue that people should not get liberal arts educations because we need more plumbers and it costs a lot to get a liberal arts education and so if you say come from a background where you don't have a lot of money and you would have to take out a lot of loans to go get a liberal arts education maybe you should just go become a plumber just just floating that idea yeah and and maybe that's like and like i'm not saying that people shouldn't become a plumber that's great i think that being a plumber is a good idea but i also think that um, a liberal arts education is generally like a good thing. I think reading things yeah. and engaging with things outside of your comfort zone is good. Um, and so it's interesting to see how this like class element that goes all the way back to the the Greek period of uh, the people who can afford to think for a little while, they can go think for a little while. And the people who can't afford to do that, they should just go do some other form of labor uh, that maybe is not intellectually fulfilling for them, but certainly provides for their needs day to day. So it's interesting to see how that that part of it has come back as well, this kind of implied, or not even implied, explicit class structure to the liberal arts. Mm -hmm. So, yep, that's just a a thing that I wanted to point out. and I think that your 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 bit about the contemporary environment is actually really, really well warranted. Because, again, I also like the liberal arts. I come out of a liberal arts background. I like reading things. Um, but the, I don't know, this this particular historical narrative, I think, is something that we, we need to think about more in terms of who, who historically has been the beneficiary of, of these institutions and who have we let into these debates and these arguments and whose needs have we considered? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I mean, the you know, not to be uh, too like of the moment about it. Right. But there there is a move and a broad consensus mood uh, move to say deny um people on income-based grounds of being able to get student loans for liberal arts education as opposed to trade schools, right? <sighs> and I came from, it, it, it is uh, unexpressible in the time we're making the podcast to talk about the wide gulf between me and a traditional liberal arts education as far as class-wise, right? Like mm-hmm. that only happened to me because I could secure federal loans and a substantial amount of federal loans. Like there, there was just no way any universe that could have happened without those very particular government structured things right um right. and if that had not been available to me then that would have been bad and i come from a place of relative privilege right you know i'm, I'm a white dude in the united states in the, in, in the the 2000s right um right and so there are lots and lots and lots of people who don't have those like basic privileges that i do um despite lacking the class one but they are 
they they will explicitly and are explicitly being disenfranchised by the move. It, it just seems very. Um, it sucks. It's bad. Yeah. Yeah. No. And like I am in a very similar situation in that like had I not gotten the scholarships that I did, I probably would have ended up. I don't know working in the casket factory with my dad Mm -hmm. (laughs) right like that's just sort of the way of it um Mm -hmm. so yeah i i have uh you we both have a vested interest in in making sure these these liberal arts are accessible um and this also ties in uh with the next chapter very briefly which is about play forms and art because this uh logic gets uh to an extent reproduced again in the same way that it gets uh reproduced in the classical period and in like the early modern period um well and also the medieval period sorry medievalists uh you count too um but uh there are the fine arts which is uh to say the arts that are suited toward someone of an upper like social standing so these are things like music and singing um, recitation uh, and Hazinga makes a huge deal out of the fact that the the verb um, in many languages as it is in English uh, that you use when you're talking about performing on an instrument is play because mm-hmm. um, guess what music is play uh, guess what language is reality wow uh, <laughs> but then we have what he calls the plastic arts um, or what uh, Shakespeare calls or would have called like the mechanical arts uh, which are things like sculpture uh, carpentry um, things that require you to literally like labor and, and to like work and build in a way that uh, the fine arts do not um, and he says that music for example is play right the fine art is play the plastic arts are not play <laughs> yeah um, i thought that was a really like an interesting like place to dig in your heels <laughs> right it's like you know what i really need to do right now is like reproduce this bizarre like class division in in art from from like this the 15th century like that's what i need to do yeah um <laughs> Uh, but then he also says that just just because he wants he wants be people to, he wants sculptures to be art. Once the thing gets made, then it becomes play, right? Like once it's something that people are looking at and talking about, like the reception or the enjoyment of it is play, but the actual making of it isn't. Yeah. Um, which also then like sort of makes you think like, well, so is writing music like composing music is that more laborious than playing it like what's going on here well uh, i started that's... thinking about a uh, game development here I, oh. you, I i think that you could do a very interesting oh. reading of hazinga right that says the act of making a video game is not art it's only when someone goes and plays that video game that it becomes art and so it becomes a really easy way of of uh uh, re reconfiguring the boundaries of the our games art debate for everyone to be happy. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, you got you got to take like a lot of racist baggage to get there. But as long right. as you're okay with that part of it, you really get to everyone gets to have their cake and eat it too. I think. Yeah. In the games or art debate. Uh, but so yeah, these are these are the case study chapters that we just kind of blew through, and now we have the final two chapters um, that will. Like I, I kind of took took the reins on the case study chapters just to give those uh, in in summary, um, but you can come back in more now, Cameron, because I imagine you have more to say. Chapter eleven is uh, Western civilization subspecie ludi, which is to say, uh, you know, Western civilization uh, sort of with respect to or under under the uh, banner of um, species of play. 
Yeah. Um, so there's a. This is where the progress narrative, like it's it's obviously like a big part of all of this. And what we haven't gotten to, or, or what, what I guess I should remind you, is that in all of these, Michael's done a very good job of like getting you the precise statement of what these are about. But really, the content of all of these chapters has been like, and here's an ethnic group that does this, and here's an ethnic group that does this, and here are people who do potlatch, and this is why it's similar to what people did in whatever medieval England. And um, all of those different things mean X, Y, Z. You know, it's all of this is built out of comparison that that um, I think for the heart of the argument, you can cut all of it out because none of it proves anything. Right. It's just examples of, mm-hmm. of stuff. And again, like I said at the beginning, there's no way of knowing if these are accurate. And so mm-hmm. they might as well be fiction. Um, but right. again, like this book is in many ways a kind of reiterated foundational myth. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, this book is like fan fiction about reality, right? <laughs> I mean, and shout out to Brian Taylor, who who uh, once said this about, um, uh, not to call Brian out, but he, he uh, was talking about like speculative realism as a, as a philosophical thing. He was like, well, it's all just fan fiction about reality. <laughs> I, th- I think that's uh, that's been lodged in my head uh, forever. But yeah, I mean, you know, it's just like, it's telling a story to make that story true. Right. Mm -hmm. And and there's no like counter narrative ever here. And so this is where the comparative generally falls out. And then he begins just telling the linear progress narrative of Western civilization and like, you know, in quotation marks, Western civilization as if the West is some sort of monolith, as if, you know, the Middle East and North and Central Africa and the extraction of resources from around the globe, uh, as if those have nothing to do with Western civilization, right? right? Like, well, it's like, like as if as if the ancient Greeks, whom he loves so much, would have considered uh, his his far flung northern uh, Dutch ancestors <laughs> Western or in in any way like comparable to themselves. Well, and this is why, in, you know, this is another moment to just say this, right? There, there's a reason why a lot of this type of writing in the 20th century gets taken up by white supremacists today and it's because they're doing things like saying the the greeks and i don't know the the irish are part of one monolithic culture and civilization western civilization right right um the even the notion that the greeks were white is a historical construction right yeah, like the Greeks, like, like whiteness doesn't exist at the time. Right, that's like not a thing. Greeks specifically noted the uh, the the what we would call whiteness, but right, like the paleness of Northern Europeans, and they thought it was gross. Yeah, right. right? So, like, so like these are different groups. They're like widely different groups. They're different ethnicities. They're different cultures. They are not monolithic in any way. And so when he starts doing this periodization, right of the Greeks to the medieval period, you know, the classical period to the medieval period to modernism to, and he starts getting really finite. He gives us like the Baroque, the Rococo. I know. He <laughs> like, really, really split in the, split in the atom here. Yeah. Um, and so all of these for him become part of one mainline narrative. But I think anyone who's a, who's a historian now of any of these different periods and people and ethnic groups and looking at the connections that they have with all kinds of different cultures would say that, look, this, this is just a story. This is a mythical, um, recreation that serves a very particular kind of ideological function. It's not real. Right. Right. Like it's not a thing. 
Um, and, but but he's using this myth, the, the story that he is telling, uh, in order to talk about the ways that each of these periods deal with play. And if you care about these different divisions, I strongly encourage you to read the chapter. But really, it's about telling a story that play is a pretty big part of Western civilization until we get to the 19th century. And then in the kind of post-Enlightenment hangover, um, for various reasons, I guess one's kind of an attachment to romanticism. One is a stronger solidification of industrialization. I think he, industrialization really is an enemy here in this book. Mm-hmm. Um, those things rob Western civilization of the play element. Mm-hmm. And so, like we, that gets us all the way to, like to late nineteenth century. And, and so, on one ninety two, he says, "Neither liberalism nor socialism offered the play element any nourishment in the nineteen or any nourishment." Quote unquote. Mm-hmm. That's the quote, right? right. So, so, by the time that we get to the the big competing ideologies of the late nineteenth century, which is going to be like Marxism or some version of Marxism, um, and market based liberalism and and rights based liberalism, all that kind of stuff. By the time we get there, um, it's not that it's seriousness, right? Because seriousness can always be interrupted by by play, but it's that the play element can't find purchase in these ideologies. And so then, therefore, we have hurt ourselves in some fundamental way. And you get the sense that, like, World War One is being laid at the feet of this. Right? Yeah. Right, right, right. Uh, that this, this loss of play is not, in fact, a... a result of world war one but in some sense caused it yeah um and he yeah it's it's very strange because i do not i mean i guess it's got to be industrialism because when i was reading these chapters i was thinking like what is it that happens in the 19th century that really turns him off because he actually like he loves he loves medieval europe right i think you could probably say that that is like if you read this like that is his clearly his favorite point in time Um, He's okay with the Renaissance and the age of humanism. He's actually sort of surprisingly um, on board with the humanists. Uh, I didn't expect this, but um, he likes the humanists because basically he he, he assigns to them um, a universal kind of irony that I don't think they necessarily deserve. Um, But like an an experimentalism and a will, like an openness, like this kind of like, uh, I mean, I I think for him, the humanists are doing... um, like the the thing that the human mind is meant to do right and this is another place where like ideology gets to rewrite history right mm-hmm. um they were good the enlightenment was so good because it was wholly open to experiments and anything that would that would um you know radically change the way that we think of the world but also allow us to understand it more right, right. unless those are uh, you know, cultures outside of a very particular part of Europe, um, and unless it requires you to recognize the fundamental humanity of of people who don't look like Europeans, right? Like there, there's a very clear delimitation for Huizinga here about what is good openness and what is not. Exactly. Yeah. So um, yeah, the Renaissance is cool. Uh, oh, and I also just want to say, like the, the the weird thing that I think he does with humanism is he says that Heras- Erasmus is kind of like uh, sort of the, the arch humanist. Um, which is a pretty fair claim, right? Like, I would not necessarily disagree in the, in the sense that I think Erasmus is a good embodiment of a lot of, like, tendencies within what we call humanism. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, he says, you know, like, the he talks about Calvin and Luther as yeah. as not... Um, they, they would have... They, they hate Erasmus and his humanism. Uh, 
he sort of su- he, he suggests that like Protestants weren't humanists, which was incredibly untrue. Like, you know, Calvin Calvin like knew how to look at texts, right? He had like he, he you would not necessarily call him a humanist, right? Um, but he he had like that kind of textual training, and there were humanists who were Calvinists. So mm-hmm. uh, then uh, yeah, he has his big hard no against Marxism. Marxism is bad because it is economically and materially determinist, and this is bad. That's bad. That's bad. That's what he says, right? Uh, the sense that I get, right, is sort of the, the again, like the conservative argument, which is that saying um, that human life is in some way economically and materially structured is demeaning to, like, human dignity. Yeah. Um, that's sort of, like, again, pure ideology kind of argument. Uh but yeah, no, he he goes out really hard against Marxism and later the Soviets. Um, and in the next chapter, uh, that's where the Soviets come up. And he very conspicuously does not really name any of the other fascists that are just like popping around at this point. Mm-hmm. Even though he talks about them, right? He doesn't name them. It's, it's, only, it's only the Soviets that he has to really drag out and name and talk about how bad they are. Yeah, it's an interesting, I mean, so a lot of these people um, who are writing in this mode, this kind of, you know, I don't know, like pseudo-anthropological theory kind of mode, pre-anthropological theory mode. Um, uh, so like Kawa too, but Bataille and then Mouse, who, you know, Bataille is, is heavily indebted to, and so is Suzinga, it comes up a couple times. Like all of, all of these people who are doing, these Europeans in particular, who are writing about... Um, you know, uh, quote unquote primitive culture, or their language would be primitive culture in the relationship and what, or what it tells us about uh, the contemporary period. And, and here I want to say that think about the relationship to evolutionary psychology here. <laughs> think mm-hmm. about how these are using the exact same mode. But um, all of them tend to come out against the Soviet Union in various different ways. Um, and they all tend to do it by saying, well, look at the way that, that primitive humans work and they don't, they don't do anything the Soviets do. And so there, and then therefore it's not in human nature to do it. And, you know, there's a very common argument that we have experienced throughout the 19th and 20th century, but, um, very importantly, they also don't look to any like, uh, indigenous populations or just non-European populations who do have a highly organized, highly structured, top-down uh, economic system, right? right. Of which though there are many. Right. Um, so so it, it's kind of like this cherry-picking example kind of thing, too. They get to prove that human nature doesn't have it in it by not looking at any groups that do do that. <laughs> um, yeah, oh, and also this chapter is the one, just for, for those listening, right, if you want to get into wig talk, this is the chapter where he <laughs> talks about wigs and how uh, they are just this incredible example of, of the play instinct in human culture. <laughs> yep. Um, judges wigs. I think this is, there are multiple times that wigs come up. I think this is the one where judges wigs are the most important one. Yes. Or, or yes. no, no, that might be, anyway, they're, they're, the fact that I can be confused about what wig talk is happening here is, is indicative of, of what kind of book. book this is. Yeah. And so that the sort of, so that's sort of the history, right? He takes us right up to um, sort of the 19th century and sort of industrialization and Marxism. Um, and then we get chapter 12, the final chapter, which is the play element in contemporary civilization. Um, and his sort of big claim right off the bat here is, and this is page 196, uh, quote, the recognition of games and bodily exercises as important cultural values was, was withheld right up to the end of the 18th century. Um, 
so this is part of a kind of argument that he is making about so for whatever reason actually this chapter begins like his i like how he decides to tackle the issue of the play element in contemporary civilization is to talk about the formation of sports clubs yeah and uh specifically kind of the commodification the subsequent commodification of that into um professional athletic organizations yeah i mean he says that the the arc of his argument here is that when you have that it fundamentally robs culture at large from engaging with sport or with, with engaging with play because it becomes very delimited. There become very strict rules. And so really, I mean, he's kind of saying that when you invent rules lawyering, play goes away, you know, mm-hmm. in, in a general sense. Um, as if, as if the the like beautiful arguments of the sophists were not in themselves a kind of form of rules lawyering. But okay, yeah, they were yeah, a hundred percent. They were rules lawyer. Right? It's like uh, oh, oh, you've you've crossed the magic word, right? Right. You, know, you use the word. I don't. Now know. I'm going to decimate you with facts and logic. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> um, and so yeah, it's the, it's this weird kind of moment. And he says specifically, right, something that we didn't really talk about um, so far. And, and we don't have to either. But he says that uh, kind of myth um, and religion, the kind of combination of those two things, they're an important part of play because you get to kind of um, construct narratives about the god or the deity or whatever and about its effect on your life. And you don't really know one way or the other. So it's this chaotic relationship that's governed by um, a relationship between you and the deity, right? So mm-hmm. um, for the Greeks, it would be like, well, I guess Zeus is, you know, I prayed to Zeus and a good thing happened. And so I guess that's what's going on. You know, I guess that that has some effect, although it's unclear what it is, right? It's right. not it's as if, oh, sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, it's that same thing that I, that I, as I said, that I think is so fascinating, this recurrent issue in, in this book about um, sort of practice in belief, yeah. Right. Like the Santa Claus thing. Like we act yes. as if it's true. Right. We're willing to believe it's true and therefore it becomes true. Yeah. And and you can't. And I think the this is kind of unstated until this chapter. But I think the the additional qualifiers he wants to put on on that is like if you could, you know, if when I prayed, I had to put my left arm on on the floor and I had to like wave my right arm around on the ground and I had to wiggle my nose at the same time and then my prayer would always come true then it wouldn't be good anymore. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> I think he would I think he would be like, "Oh, that's not yeah. that's not play anymore. That's something else. It's like the the fulfillment of exact conditions. It's that aleatory like I don't know, something could happen. I mean, literally what what Kawa calls the, you know, the act of the gods, right? Mm-hmm. The, or the that when you roll the dice, it's in God's hands. I mean, this is what Hazinga's after mm-hmm. all the time. And so I, so I guess that, that for him, sports, it, it becomes that kind of math problem of play as opposed to the free reign of play. Everything becomes money ball. Yeah, which seems like absolute horseshit, right? Like, <laughs> like it seems like it, it. This seems like someone who has written about sports, and even in his his the time period that he is alive, it doesn't seem to to map onto things, right? I mean, there. Any time that someone performs a feat of sports prowess, right, 
it is a mythical moment, right? So like Steph Curry hitting threes from everywhere yeah. on earth or, you know, from, from two arenas away or even like Babe Ruth pointing, you know, pointing at the stands and then hitting the home run. Right. Which, which mm-hmm. predates this book significantly. Like, like those are, are, you know, messianic moments in, in sports. Um, and they don't seem it seems like you get play like this like oh gosh what could happen i mean you're not you're not watching 200 games of baseball a year in order to like count the scores although i guess some people are doing that right right you're you're doing it for those like weird moments of something unpredictable happening and in fact unpredictable moments are happening constantly in sports that's what's so good about them it's why you watch games right um yeah so you're right. Like this is horseshit. There's, uh, and you said in your notes that one of the things that Hazinga seems to be really taking issue with here, although he doesn't say it, is is the idea of like commodification, right? Yeah. The the basically the way that uh, like capitalist markets really take over uh, social play at this moment, um, and people start playing bridge, which he does not like because bridge is. <laughs> I guess not as mythical and heroic as he would like it to be. It's too petty. Yeah. (laughs) Um, I don't know. It seems pretty like agonistic to me. I mean, you can start seeing here why like Kawa was like, oh yeah, the the bones of this argument are good, but we're going to do a different historical racism with them with some categories. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So yeah, like basically, uh, so Hazinga is saying like once, um, once capitalism or commodification seeps into play, uh, then play is starts turning vulgar. Uh, yeah. It becomes uh, more about uh, sort of either like bean counting, uh, as you said, like getting paid or like my team racking up the most victories compared to your team, which is somehow worse than the normal Aegon, right? Like the it's it's yeah. weird. It's weird about like so. On the one hand, right, play results in these social groupings. And on the other hand, um, as per this last chapter, one of the problems with play in Hazinga's contemporary moment is that these social groupings are getting really mean and petty. Mm-hmm. Right? So it's like, okay, so they're doing what they're supposed to do, but you can't really say that there was some other way for this to happen. It just seems to be what's happening. And this also goes into what he, he calls um, pluralism, uh, which is his name for the degraded uh, version of modern play. Um, it is a, quote, blend of adolescence and barbarity that for him describes uh, the, the, like, you know, professional, like, sports apparatus just as much as as it uh, describes, like, Hitler. <laughs> yeah. Yes. He doesn't say Hitler, right? But he, like, this is the this is the part where he starts talking about sort of, like, fascistic nationalism and how it is um, pluralism on a, on a, on the level of the state, right? It's, the, yeah. the fascists are fighting bad wars because they are openly saying, we are going to fight these wars for resources and territory uh, and not for glory. Except, actually, they are saying that thing, too, so... <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's very hard to, and maybe, I don't know, maybe this is like a communication problem, right? Maybe he doesn't know this, you know, giving him the most benefit of the doubt, right? But the thing that we remark so much upon about the Nazis, in fact, is that how efficient they were at creating a national narrative about themselves that was mythical, right? I mean, you're pointing right. this out, but I just want to, like, 
you know, the reason that we watch um, the Triumph of the Will, right, is, is not to to glorify Hitler, um, but it's uh, but it's highly educational in how that film operates to to deify um, and to mythologize Hitler and Nazism, right? Like mm-hmm. it is using all of the tools of aesthetics, all the the play elements of art um, in very particular ways, right? To create grandeur um, in 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 this kind of aleatory space, anything could happen, right? The future could produce anything, and what it will produce is the the glory of the Third Reich, right? Like that's mm-hmm. the the narrative of of the it's the whole national narrative for Nazism, right? So, right. Uh, it, yeah, it's really weird to, for him to be like, it's all good except for this, um, <laughs> when in fact this is the logical output. I mean, it's the same thing as uh, Horkheimer and Adorno, right? Saying that. That that the Second World War and the Holocaust are the logical output of uh, the Enlightenment, you know, uh, set of beliefs and mm-hmm. ideals. I think that you, there's a way of reading Hozinga to be like Nazism is the logical output of this progress narrative. If this progress narrative is true, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, no, like he it, it because the the most argument that he can make against it is. I don't like it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like mm-hmm. that is it, right? Every other element is just it is something like he has the seeds in his argument. Uh Nazism sprouts them and he's just like, "Oh, wait a minute. <laughs> I didn't yeah. say you could do that." Um so, yeah. Uh I mean, I guess at least he is anti-Nazi. This is also the chapter where he uh takes aim at Carl Schmidt. Um <laughs> yeah. the, yeah. Like pretty, pretty directly by name. He doesn't name him as a Nazi, but he does say like, "Here's what Carl Schmidt thinks," and Carl Schmidt is wrong. Carl Schmidt, for those at home, is a uh, pretty like important Nazi political theorist. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. So Carl Schmidt was a um, uh, yeah political sciencey kind of guy, and he wrote a book called "On the Concept of the Political," in which he argued as as a part um or during nazism um he argued that there was this kind of self and enemy logic involved mm-hmm. in all of politics it's a very similar kind of huzinga kind of style argument in that it's a very totalizing narrative right um but there's always a self there's always an, an enemy and schmidt enjoys a very very long um reign in philosophy and theory and political philosophy um schmidt had a complicated relationship with nazism i, I he was actually thrown in jail by the nazis for being too so, right uh other other things of note uh that Hazinga points out here um america has ruined electoral politics he's uh-huh. essentially right i don't disagree with him on that point um <laughs> but to be more serious right what he says is that like uh the united states has has by his estimation has made a kind of unique intervention into political history um by making elections like essentially a kind of like mass mediated um sporting event yeah which is again like in in at least sentiment right i don't think i disagree with him on at least that point (laughs) like our elections are hell yeah yeah, he's uh-huh. not. I mean, often his diagnosis is not wrong. It's just like what <laughs> either a what he wants to do or b how he got there. Yeah, like Hosinga's as good as any of us is at looking at something and then stating what it is. Yeah, <laughs> it's just like when he gets into the logic of how it operates. It's like, oh, I don't know, buddy. Yeah. <laughs> um, so he he makes all these points and then he tra- he he tries to tie things up. Um, and this is yeah. where the book just like goes. I mean it. 
things have been rickety up until now. I have no idea how this book is ending. Like, I have no idea what my takeaway is supposed to be. So just here's here's a, a good quote that I pulled out. Um, and of course, like, again, right, he's just spent some time talking about, um, like, how awful and terrifying the world is getting in 1938. Uh, and how, and his sort of uh, opinion on this is that you know, fascism is happening because we have degraded the play instinct in some way. Yeah. Um, so then he says, quote, it is the moral content of an action that makes it serious. When the combat has an ethical value, it ceases to be play. My question here is what the hell does that mean? It doesn't mean anything. This, this <laughs> is not worth engaging with. Okay. This, this is like not like this is an uncharitable move, mm-hmm. but it doesn't mean anything. It, it directly is in contestation with things he's already said. It doesn't make any sense in its context. It is not worth engaging with. This is one of the rare times I'm going to say that on the show. <laughs> <laughs> a show that is dedicated to just like close reading and paying attention to what a text is doing. But like it's off the rails, right? Like, right. like he, he has worked himself into a knot trying to create a narrative of a linear progression that suggests that people, that Western people in the 1930s are somehow the pinnacle of human existence. And all and all of the, the context around him suggests that if that is true, then that's bad. Right. <laughs> like that's that's a then then like humans are only on the on the like fast track to hell all the right. time. <laughs> um and and so he's trying to work his way out of it, right? Mm-hmm. And you can't without deconstructing the whole system he has. So, yeah, and that's how the book ends, right? He, he like, goes back to Plato, and he's like, remember how Plato, like, we are playful creatures, but remember that Plato said that humans are the playthings of the gods. Great. Okay, great. Well, cool. it's, uh, it's heartening to know that people didn't know how to end books back then either. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and so that is, that is Homo Ludens. Um, yeah. With that, we've been pretty brisk about this, really. We're only, like, a little over two hours uh, by my recording, and we might come down a little bit more in editing. Yeah. Well, well I, I do want to say one thing here at the end. Um, we did not, I don't think, other than at the very beginning, we didn't say the word magic circle at all. Oh, yeah. Because guess what? He doesn't really talk about it either. <laughs> no. Magic circle shows up in the first chapter and the last chapter, and it's always, like... You know, if as a game studies person, you might think the word magic circle is like the key term of this book. But really, it's just like a descriptor that gets used. In fact, I think the if not the first time, so I, I went back and looked this up. I think this is the first time the phrase magic circle appears in the book. And just let me read the quotation. This is on page 10. Um, All play moves and has it its being within uh, within a playground marked off beforehand either materially or ideally, deliberately or as a matter of course. Just as there is no formal difference between play and ritual, so the consecrated spot cannot be formally distinguished from the playground. The arena, the card table, the magic circle, the temple, the stage, the screen, the tennis court, the court of justice, etc. are all in form and function playgrounds, i.e. forbidden spots, isolated, hedged round, hallowed, within which special rules obtain. All are temporary worlds within the normal world dedicated to the performance of an act apart. The operative, the operative term here, and even going into the, into the, next, um, the next paragraph, is the word playground. Like, mm-hmm. a magic circle is a type of playground. It's not even the key term in its use case. 
Right. And so, like, yeah, right. Like, so Magic Circle, like, it becomes one of these weird foundational terms of game studies, and people are pulling it out of this book, and it is, like... So of the of this book, say like two hundred pages, game studies is going to base itself on uh, four paragraphs. Maybe. Yeah. Yes. Right? Yeah. I am looking <laughs> at the word magic circle. So I, I went and like just you know uh, did a little little text search here. Um, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. There are eight mentions of the phrase or the word term magic circle in this whole book, um, and it is a subtype. Of something else, really, or it's it's you know a name for a a general idea of which there is a context in which certain rules apply that don't apply in other contexts. And as we've established, that always in this book in its context, like that is a particular instance. But the play instinct or, or the play concept, right, the play element, mm-hmm. suffuses through all of this, right? Like right. so, so even the moment where there is a magic circle is is kind of a unique case that just allows us to get some a good viewpoint on how play works but it's it's not the point right like it's it's just a a useful heuristic right 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 it's like like the magic circle i mean so i think the magic circle takes off because it it condenses in a way that hazinga himself does not yeah yeah, (laughs) um a lot of his argument in in like a a useful way right like talking it like the magic circle can be useful for describing like okay we are going to sit down and we're going to play pretend we're going to play a board game or whatever right we are for the time being uh, it's kind of an idealized version right it's even hazinga's idealized version of what play is of two people uh more or less on even ground so they can both be free actors coming together and be like for the next 30 minutes we are both going to pretend that uh we are choo-choo trains mm-hmm. and that's what we're gonna do <laughs> yeah um and like that's sort of it, right? Like that's as much that's as much as Sazinga has to offer it. But this uh, this concept takes on such a life of its own in broader game studies. Um, it's really fascinating to see how little it has to do with what's going on here. Yeah, I mean, you know, it, to to some degree, right? Uh, you know, this is this is my my part of game studies, right? You know, I'm I'm an assemblage theory kind of guy. You know, I think that that's the the appropriate heuristic to approach games from. And of course, like the magic circle makes no sense within that context. So, right. You know, I, I, I don't have a lot of use for that, that con or for that term anyway. Right. But, but there's, you know, there's an interesting way or a way of orienting game studies. Right. Which is to say like, this was an aberration. It like analytically doesn't make much sense. It's not very useful. We might as well say the word temple. And I think that if we use the word temple, then we're, we're we get a lot more baggage that maybe is helpful um, <laughs> for for thinking about games. Um, but if, if that's not true, or you know, or if if this is less useful than we have thought it has been useful in the past, then maybe we should have always been looking at more holistic. Uh, diffuse forms of playing games and and I think when you look at Homo Ludens that's what it's doing anyway right so to, to some degree like if you draw the progress narrative quote unquote I'm not putting big quotations around that the progress linear narrative of game studies as a mer- of Homo Ludens to Calwa to whatever you want to take it to next right which to make clear, we are trying to get away from in this podcast, right? We're, we're trying to mm-hmm. present, you know, these quote-unquote classics to to think of them in the kind of big assemblage of game studies. But right. if we, you buy we, the progress narrative, um, then maybe we, we're just misreading homo ludens, right? Maybe, mm-hmm. maybe this is a misapplication of a term 
and it might be worth it just to to get rid of it and not think about it anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, well, just throwing that out there. Yep. Should pe- should people read this book, Michael? <sighs> if you want to do game studies, you you probably don't have to read this book if you're like a weird intellectual historian who so like this book ends up being interesting to me right because i work in um uh the 16th and 17th century specifically on english drama where uh the the idea of like going into a theater and being like i'm going to watch people pretend to kill each other on stage for two or three hours um has a lot of like political and moral weight and even theological weight behind it Mm -hmm. and there's something interesting to me as i've already said about um the way that uh without like and i think this is like largely unintentional right but the way that uh huizinga sort of stumbles into this way of looking at human society as a like a bunch of like atomized individuals just being like, we're going to pretend that things are real for a minute. Um, and then like, that's going to give birth to culture, right? I don't necessarily agree with it, but the, the cognitive dynamic that he is describing is something that is really interesting to me because, um, I, I read him and I see, uh, anti-theatricalists from, uh, the 17th century, uh, making sort of like shadow versions of the same argument talking about how, uh, the magic circle, like they're not going to say the magic circle, right. But like the magic circle of the theater, uh, is going to make everyone completely immoral because they're seeing so many awful things being enacted, but they're pretending and that makes them think that it's okay. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, maybe, maybe that's the, cause I, you know, as I said earlier, I don't know if people need to read this book. Um, but as you're saying that, I mean, I, I guess that it is a great book if you're looking for a historical document of received wisdom. You know yes. what I mean? Like, like he is a great, um, like, consolidation or, like, uh, I don't know, condensation point for a lot of mainline, like, Western Enlightenment ideas, of a very particular bent, as you're pointing out, right? Because obviously anti-theatricalists are responding to something, so there's another position, right, mm-hmm. in that, that time period. Um, but, but you know, he is solidifying what seems to me to be, like, mainline opinion. And he's doing it analytically in a little bit of a different way, but, like, there, there are lots of academics at this time who believe this progress narrative. There are lots of academics at this time who are holding up the Enlightenment for a very particular kind of reason, right? Mm-hmm. Or a very particular kind of ethic that they had or, or mode of approaching the world. This kind of like curious Thomas Jeffersonian kind of thing, right? Mm-hmm. And easily, uh, you know, uh, ignoring all the bad things of that right so you know the great chain of being arguments or the owning Mm -hmm. of slaves or any of the other things that were part and parcel um so maybe it's really great for that and and you know as you're pointing out uh there's still a very robust debate about if you watch people being killed or killed or murdered in front of you uh how morally um culpable are you for that either on the presentation end or on the reception end right i mean it's the video game violence debate and weirdly enough i mean this has made me think and i don't know if it's our it should be our next book but i do think that maybe we should revisit the violence debates in the show Mm. if only because we've read so many books now that have said look i don't want to be responsible for it i want to show you um some perspectives or angles on it or i want to approach this question from a different angle 
but maybe we should approach this question from the direct angle. Maybe um, we should, yeah. In our show. So maybe I'll do a little bit of research. I don't know, like, um, you know, I don't know what the emblematic books of that debate are. But we can we can figure that out. I, I, I know it's, that, it's like, also it's a very interesting debate, right? Because it's not just like um, it's an interesting debate because it it crosses uh, like the vernacular line in a way that a lot of the other debates that we talk about on here don't, because yes. it's happening in kind of a popular arena. Um, yeah. yeah, I think we'll end up reading a popular press book. Uh, I forget the the one from the early '90s or even maybe the late '80s by the academic who's writing about Nintendo games. Um, yeah. And he's the one who says, like, Nintendo games are racist and sexist, which uh, people r- responded very negatively to at the time and has have for a long time. And there are still people who do. But that's, you know, become much more of a mainline, at least mode of inquiry. Wherever mm-hmm. you land on that is, is uh, uh, I think, your own intellectual uh, trajectory. But that's at least something we talk about uh, now. Um, so, yeah, anyway, I'll do a little bit of research on that. But my pitch to you right now, because we are very bad at doing this, but my pitch to you would be to read uh, C.L.R. James's Beyond a Boundary for next month. Sure. Uh, let me see how easily I can get that just to make sure. <laughs> it is easily accessible. It is in print currently. Oh, okay. That's great. Yeah. Okay. I didn't know if it was like something I was going to have to like order a used copy and would have no idea when it would show up. No. Um, oh, that's nice. Oh, cool. All right. Uh, yeah, no, let's, let's do that. Cause I know you've mentioned that book a couple of times and I am, I am interested because that is one that seems, uh, like, I don't know how to call it, like how to describe that, but because it's like this guy talking about cricket. <laughs> yeah. It's a guy talking about um, cricket and he's talking about culture and it is written and comes out, comes out the same year as the Calois, um, mm-hmm. but is written before that. And it's about his life before that time. So it really kind of is, um, content wise in between homo Lutons and Calois. So I think it's right. a good, I think it's a good little thing to do and it's way outside of main, uh, mainline game studies curricula. So I, I think that, that that's my bid for the yeah. next, um, kind of outsider book for us to bring in. Michael, where can people find you on the internet? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Warren is dead. Got anything to plug? Um, it's a little late to plug it now, but uh, very shortly before or shortly after our last episode dropped, um, I had a piece go up on Waypoint <clears throat> about Homestuck, um, which I have threatened uh, to make a podcast about, but no longer have to, thank God, because there's another podcast that exists that talks about Homestuck. But uh, my piece on Homestuck was called uh, How Homestuck uh, Defined What It Means to Be a Fan Online. Or Yeah, yeah, yeah. And if you uh, Google that, um, you'll pull up the Waypoint piece. And then I was also on a on the Homestuck podcast called Perfectly Generic Podcast. Um where I came on and I sort of talked about uh, Homestuck and fandom and sort of the experience of writing that piece uh, as someone who was in the fandom during the time and at the time of Homestuck being live, but then uh, came back to it uh, to write this piece when when the Homestuck epilogues posted and kind of got to see how the fandom had evolved in the past two or three years um, in really interesting ways. Yeah, and I think that we have quite a few new listeners, or at least the, my impression is that we got quite a few new listeners of, of previous episodes of this show because of your appearance on that show and, and you writing that article. So uh, if you're listening to the, this episode because of that, welcome. 
Yeah. Um, weirdly enough, uh, there was like one person on Twitter who was already a listener of both podcasts. <laughs> and I was like, ah, oh, there you are. You're my audience. <laughs> mm-hmm. The perfect Venn diagram. Right? No, like they reached out to me when like the tweet went up saying that uh, I was going to be on Perfectly Generic. And they were like, oh, wow. <laughs> when are you? When, when is Kate going to be on Game Studies Study Buddies? <laughs> no guess. Oh, gosh. <laughs> Uh, cool. That's yeah. awesome. Well, um, thanks everybody for listening. Thank you to that one person. And Michael, have you re-accessed the question bucket yet? I am in the process of doing that because I cannot find the uh, the password, and I have to prove to Google that I made the account. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, I'll check in with you in a month from now to see where we, where we are yep. with the questions. Um, you can find me on Twitter at cconsulman. Um, all kinds of stuff here, of course, on the Range Touch network of, of, of internet content. Um, of course, you can uh, listen to other episodes of the show if you haven't listened to them already. You can look down in the description below this episode uh, on whatever podcast thing you're listening to it on, and you can click on the link to Patreon. On Patreon, you at a dollar tier a month, you get a newsletter. Uh, and at $3 a month, you get access to our notes that we talk about all the time. So they have fun jokes in them sometimes, or, <laughs> or sometimes I'm just incredibly frustrated. You get a lot of stuff. You get a lot of additional content that we don't get to. Uh, and at $5 a month, you get a podcast, uh, an additional podcast with me. And right now, just a guest. Uh, it used to be me and Danny, who was the other co-creator of Range Touch, but he's uh, taken a step away just to do some other stuff right now. And so I initially planned on getting another co-host in at some point but um right now i'm just doing guest guest appearances <laughs> and it's it's pretty good it's pretty fun it's an interesting time um uh so you can check that out as well um it won't be up by the time that we this episode comes out but uh i can say between this episode 13 of game study study buddies and episode 14 of game study study buddies there will be an additional show with me and michael Mm-hmm. Um, that that yeah. I want to give too much away about, but if you like that and and you like that kind of stuff, be on the lookout for it. Uh, for all information about any of this stuff, you can follow at Ranged Touch on Twitter. Uh, we're also on Facebook, um, and uh, yeah, that's it. RangedTouch.com gets you all this kind of stuff. Additionally. One last thing. There's a range touch uh, actual play D&D podcast. We're playing D&D 5th edition. Mm-hmm. It's called Sword Coast Coast to Coast. Um, it's good. It's very funny. We've released a couple episodes so yes, far. And by the time you fun. hear this. So you've been listening to it, I've Michael? been. I I did not plug it yesterday, <laughs> having somehow magically intuited that one of the characters got explosive diarrhea from eating tainted grain. Yes, I'm listening to the podcast. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, you're a smart guy. You could have intuited that. Um, um, but yeah, so it's, it's fun so far. And so basically we're recording in like one shot, four hour blocks. And so um, each each like four episodes or so is like a self-contained thing. So you can kind of jump on pretty easily as the hope in the future. Uh, and Michael will be on as a special guest at some point soon. I'm, I'm certain uh, once we figure oh, out I the am? scheduling here. Oh yeah. I'm asserting that okay. right now. I didn't know that. Cause there's another Michael. Like we have another <laughs> Michael in the, in the range touch discord. <laughs> and I was like, it's good to keep us separate. Cause this could get confusing. <laughs> no, 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 it's fine. Uh, uh, but yeah, so that's that's a good show, and that, that's been a, a fun time. Uh, so check that out if you like it too. Again, this is all supported by Patreon, and our hosting costs are ballooning uh, month to month. Uh, and so if you think any of this is cool, uh, as little as a dollar a month actually literally goes quite a long way. Yes. Um, so yeah, that's that's the end of this episode. We're reading CLR James's Beyond a Boundary for next episode, which will come out toward the end of July. 
And thanks for listening to this episode. You got anything else, Michael? Uh, tune in next time to Game Study Study Buddies, where the social is predicated upon its exclusions. Yay! Goodbye.